Happy April Fools, everyone. And yes, we're still here. We're not shutting down. That's an April Fools joke. Let's run.com. Still going strong. We've got a great podcast for you today. The highlight is a great talk with the one and only Nick Simmons, one of America's greatest 800 meter runners ever, and now a YouTube star. He talks about his career, his dates with Paris Hilton, his YouTube channel, and much more. Weldon hasn't even actually listened to the interview. Jonathan and I did it. This is Let's Run.com co-founder Robert Johnson. First of all, I want to apologize to those of you that were hoping that we were bankrupt. Unfortunately, you're going to have to listen to this podcast for a few more weeks. But for those of you that are looking forward to it in this dark time, we're happy to be here. But yeah, Nick's interview was fantastic, John. One of our favorites, right? And there's some breaking news. From the part where he said uh, he almost went to Dartmouth College and did not. But apart from that, pretty good, pretty good time talking to Nick. Some pretty fascinating stuff and some stuff I don't think he's ever said anywhere else before. I mean, he, he's got a, a, a line in there that he thinks that every professional runner is clinically depressed at times and reveals that he was suicidal at one point in his career. So some, you know, there's obviously some lighthearted stuff in there, but some real serious stuff too as well. So definitely want to listen to that at the end of this podcast. We got lots more good stuff to talk about as well. Uh, Elliot Kipchoge's GQ shoot. Nikki Hiltz has just gotten married. We're going to play the whose career would you rather have game with Shelby Houlihan, Elena Coburn and RJ Wilson. And we're going to rank the backyard slash balcony marathons. This is the newest craze in the age of coronavirus. People can't run marathons on the road, so they're going to their own backyard. There's a bunch of crazy ones. We're going to rank those. But I got to say, I'm I'm a little disappointed. There was some grave dancing when we announced uh, that Let's Run was bankrupt on April Fool's Day. Some people didn't realize it was a joke. Some people are actually happy. There was good riddance. They're saying, let's get rid of the message boards. It made me a little sad, I got to say. John, John, that's all fake news. Fake news is is the rage these days. Immediately, a GoFundMe was started to raise money to save Let's Run. That was wild. That was within like minutes. R- well, Robert put the home like the new splash page up at midnight Eastern time, and within about ten minutes, there was a GoFundMe page up to save the site. Oh, I gotta g- give a call shout out to my aunt and uncle who just sent a text expressing their regrets. Uh, yes, this is an April Fool's joke. Um, we're still here. I mean, people people ate this up. They eat it up every year. They fall for it every year. So, hey, April Fool's must go on. We can't stop everything. It's also sort of interesting. There's no backyard marathons in the United States. There's no balcony marathons in the United States because, by and large, in the U.S., you can still run outside. So the world is, is tackling COVID-19 very differently. Let's talk a little bit about this April Fool's a little bit more. I know some people thought it was tone deaf. Some people were upset. And I, I our view on it is... Yes, this is serious. Yes, people are losing their lives. But we have to go on living. You have to smile. You have to laugh. Um, I mean, and to be honest, this joke could, could have, you know, not that we're going bankrupt, but it's going to impact us. But we're not losing our jobs like other people are. But people are like, do not understand this. Yes, we understand this. We're in the advertising business. Do people not understand how bad advertising is right now? So, uh, you know, I, I think sort of the best humor is sometimes a little bit edgy or you're making fun of yourselves a little bit. So sorry to anyone we offended, but... Life has to go on. Wow, that's that's the Rojo that's the Rojo uh, motto. Sorry to anyone off- we offended, but life has to go on. Well, I'm kind of shocked he's apologizing. He's getting all serious and whatever. Like I never thought of not doing an April Fool's. I, mean, I guess you could argue the bankruptcy one. I thought maybe the one about the uh, the contract. We would get more complaints. The piece, John, this was yours, right on the 
Alberto Salazar, Amy Yoderbegley, no friends contract. I thought maybe some women might come up and say, oh, because you talk about body issues, you might get some criticism there. Well, then, it's only 10 a.m. Eastern right now on Wednesday. I think once the West Coast wakes up, we, uh, you know, hopefully we don't have any issues. It's all meant to be in good fun. But obviously, the Amy Yoderbegley situation, I mean, that was a serious issue. And we kind of tried to take a lighthearted spin on it. But you know, the issue itself and what Alberto Salazar was doing out there with the Oregon Project obviously was quite serious. Well, I want to give a shout out to Josh Wolger, Canadian. We love you, Canada. He's the guy that founded the GoFundMe. Had a $10,000 goal. I would have hoped it would have been a lot higher than that. He probably doesn't have children. It's quite expensive. But um, anyways, well, the, you've got a better sense of this in the past of or are we going to do let's talk about let's run later? I was going to talk about like in the past, weren't we threatened with a lawsuit for April Fools? Yes, the lady threatened to sue me because I don't know if she fell for an April Fools. I don't know emotional trauma and distress. Probably a lot of lawyers out of work now. We better better be careful about this. But hey, stuff must go on, and the podcast must have a sponsor. I mean, and we've got a great sponsor for people once again. The feed dot com is our sponsor this week. If you're looking, the one thing going on in America is training. You need to train optimally. You need to stay healthy. The feed has everything possibly, everything you need to try to keep going. They've sent our team immunity packs. Haven't gotten those yet. They have a fresh supply of Martin and the new AeroFit device. If you haven't checked it out, go to feed.com slash let's run and you will get an extra 15% off. They have performance products for runners, supplements, you know, vitamin C, vitamin E, a lot of stuff that people are, you know, consuming right now, and it's shipped to your door. You don't have to go out and not be socially safe. And a great 15% off for all Let's Run visitors. And speaking of visitors, if you want to reach us, unlike Facebook, unlike Twitter, pick up the phone, 844-LET'S-RUN, 844-538-7786. You hit extension 3, you're connected to my cell phone. You hit extension 4, you're connected to Weldon's cell phone. Extension 6 is John Extension 7 is directly to the voicemail for the podcast, and we need some more fake, some more callers. About a year ago, we had a... Fake callers, not fake callers. Yes, fake callers. But, but we had a fake Galen Robert. Was it a fake Alberto Salazar? That was one of my favorite clips we, we put on the podcast. Guy's not called back recently, so love to hear from you again. And I, I do have to apologize, though, Weldon. Weldon's always asking me if people are calling, and I'm like, no, there's not any voicemails. There have been some voicemails. So I had a great talk with a, like a D3 guy that wanted me to coach him. He's a big fan of the podcast, but thankfully he's, things are working out. And another f- call from a woman who was very, very upset that, um, about some of our moderating policies, but she thought we were too harsh. Like she's sort of basically anti Castor Semenya and thinks that, well, I don't even want to go into it, but. Well, wait, Robert, you mentioned D3 person. This is a topic of discussion. We're going to bring this up because we talked later in the interview with Nick Simmons, who was a D3 star in college. And he said one of the schools he was looking at was Dartmouth College. But he didn't mention Cornell University, where you were the, the distance coach at the time. Why were you not recruiting Nick Simmons? If he was interested in Dartmouth, surely he'd be interested in, you know, the slightly worse version of Dartmouth that is Cornell. You mean the, the juggernaut that won eight straight Ivy League championships when I was there? They had not won one in like 30 years. I show up on campus. Boom, eight in a row. Wait, how many cross country? How many Heps cross country titles did you guys win? Uh, excuse me, John. Does Nick run cross country? I don't think he really does. I'm um, John. So sounds like you didn't need. Yeah. You know, well, all right. So you're saying you didn't need him? That's your excuse? No, I'm saying that Nick graduated high school in 2002, 
And I got hired in the summer of 2002. So I couldn't have recruited Nick Simmons. I would, of course, found that diamond in the rough. Like, I found all my diamonds in the rough. I, I would recruit guys that were like the number two guys in their high school team. And instantly, they'd run 148 as freshmen. Jimmy Weiner, I love you. All right. It sounds like one guy did that. But I'll, I'll give you credit. Good job. Speaking of love, we have some good news in the coronavirus shutdown. U.S. Women's... We had a world championships last year. U.S. Women's world championship team member, Nikki Hiltz, got married. I just heard about it today, so I assume this was yesterday she got married, John? All I saw is she tweeted out this morning. She had pictures of her and Therese Heiss, who was her girlfriend. I don't even... Her wife, John. Now her wife. Well, yeah, I didn't know if they were fiancé or how this happened. I don't know if there were people there. I mean, they said... Nikki said now that the world is ending, you know, what better time to get married? I mean, I guess... I personally, I would have wanted to get married, you know, when all my friends and family can come. But if they if that makes them happy, congratulations to the new happy couple. And uh, yeah, Nikki, you know, great year in 2019 breakout makes the world championship final. Now she gets married in 2020. So at least someone is having a good time in these uh, dark days. I was actually thinking of, of content ideas, John. I hadn't run this by Weldon or, your, or you, John. I need to get John, married. All right. Let's, yes. let's run wedding. John is, is the only Let's Run.com team member that is not married. And it's amazing that someone as sexy and as smart and as athletic as John could is not married. But, you know, sometimes when, you're, when you've got it all going for you, you like to, you know, play the field as, as a 20, 20-something-year-old. 20 but, John, what if we had, like, sort of like a dating, like, people submit their resumes and then, like, me, Steve, the Let's Run visitors, we pick who you go on a date with. And it's a virtual date on Zoom. So like you guys have lunch together like every every Wednesday at twelve noon is Jonathan Gold's date and but yet we everyone is allowed to watch it on Zoom so you guys don't realize that we actually get to hear what y'all are saying and stuff like that. You told me and anyone who's interested in it now that you will be listening in. So well, I know, but we, we won't be commenting. Like you'll know we're there, but maybe we'll just be listening to audio, so you don't have to see us like laughing or you don't want to see our reaction. Who wouldn't want to go on a virtual date where their bosses can listen in? This sounds like a great idea. John, pay-per-view dating, this might be it. People get to watch you interact. Since you can't actually meet someone in public, other people watch, judge. This might oh this might be huge. We let people talk anonymously, you rank their game and see how they're doing. At the very least, John, can we get an update? Like, how was the swiping this week? Have you been swiping? I mean, you got extra time in your hands. I think this would be a good way to try to meet someone and bond with an emotional connection. Yeah, look, I know people are starved for content these days, but I don't think we're that desperate where we want to talk about my dating life that much. I think we should just move on. Let's people listen to this podcast for running news. So let's we're gonna talk. We're gonna talk running soon. But by the way, did you guys see this? I think it was in Brooklyn. This guy had it up on Twitter or YouTube or something. He asked a, a girl on the on the building across from him. She was sitting up on the on the roof, and he saw her and she thought she was cute. He sent a drone over with a note with his phone number, and then asked her out. And they had like a a, a Zoom date, you know, on their phones. It was they ate dinner together? They ate the same microwavable organic meal or something. It was amazing. And then he said he goes to the bathroom. He's like, I don't really have to go to the bathroom. I just want to analyze how it's going. You know what you do on a date? Sometimes you get up. You go to the bathroom, sort of just check your hair and stuff. And he's like, okay, it's time to take this date to the next level. And he then goes downstairs, blows up a, a, a plastic bubble, and then rolls himself down to the girl's house. It was amazing. It was one of the funniest things I've ever seen. So, All right. That, that was our uh, dating advice of the week. I think we should move on to some stuff that happened. All right. This was one of the fun, most fun things I think that's happened during coronavirus so far. 
yesterday, or actually March, sorry, March 30th, Monday, GQ comes out. They have this big feature. They sent Knox Robinson to Captagat to LA Kip Showcase training camp. And then they have one of the most amazing food photo shoots I've ever seen. And Elliot Kipchoge, he's wearing $6,000 suits. He's wearing $5,000 coats. He's wearing this vest. He's wearing what looks like a bathrobe that costs $6,300. He looks like Forrest Gump in one of them. I mean, this was absolutely incredible. Were you guys as flabbergasted by the GQ story as I was? I was kind of surprised to see it. It was good that kind of Kipchoge has you know, garnered the attention of GQ because I feel like with a lot of these stars, you know, outside of the Let's Run community or, you know, that represents the professional running as a sport community that a lot of people don't know who Kipchoge is. They don't pay attention. So it's great when Kipchoge is getting attention. I was shocked at how much, how expensive a lot of this stuff costs. And then I'm kind of wondering like, oh, in Kenya, you know, like, I mean, I guess, should you matter that someone's wearing, you know, an $800 pair of shorts in Kenya more than here because there's more poverty there, but the same issues, maybe it's just closer to home there because maybe we just kind of ignore it here. But, you know, you can't get too worked up on that. I thought it was really cool, the attention he got. I thought the photos were amazing, but I know y'all don't think I have a filter. When I first saw them, I thought, aren't, like, the social justice warriors going to go crazy? I mean, people get mad about blackface. Here they're, like, I mean, I know Kipchoge is wealthy himself, but they're dressing some African guy up in clothes that he would probably never wear. I I was kind of shocked that it was, I don't know, that people didn't think that they were, I I, I don't know. In this day and age, I was like, whoa, is this allowed? I think it's amazing. Like the one where he's leaning back in that chair with his feet up on the wall. That's the best one. Yeah. The five. I mean, he looks like a boss. He looks so good in it. I mean, he looks like a guy. That's, you know, on vacation and chilling and the sunglasses are so good. But to be honest, I was shocked. I, I'm glad. I thought it was a little edgy. I mean, the blackface comparison is terrible. But yeah. Right? He, gets to, he, gets to determine, he gets to determine whether he wants to wear the clothes or not. There was something kind of weird about the optics because I'm like, I've never seen Kipchoge wearing stuff like this. And maybe some of them are sort of just like upgraded versions of like what Kenyan society wears. Because you see these dudes in suits a lot, but I haven't. And some of these things are you know look like a little traditional wear that you sometimes see in africa like you know like just the super ritzy version of that so maybe this is more traditional kenyan stuff just to the hundredth degree no i think part of part of the appeal was it was stuff that i was like elliot i don't think he'd ever wear this stuff the only clothes i've ever seen him wear is sort of athletic gear or you know suits if he said it's some award thing so i thought the appeal of seeing him in all this crazy clothing it was pretty interesting i also learned the word drip officially uh, you know i thought i was pretty clued in i'm on twitter and social media quite a lot i hadn't heard the phrase drip before this and then everyone's like oh my god kipchoge his drip is out of control do you guys know what drip means fortunately not it's, it's funny that you say that john because i i, I knew that it meant kind of cool because it says Kipchoge shows off some serious drip for GQ. That was a thread that was started on Let's Run yesterday. And if you actually Google Kipchoge drip, it says Kipchoge with the drip, and that's a Reddit thread. So Reddit is number one, Let's Run is number two, if you type in Kipchoge and drip. So, John, explain to us exactly what it means. Well, I went on Urban Dictionary. I don't think this definition is going to help. When your bling is iced out, but that shit melting from all your hot bars, you got the drip. 
And then it clarifies just another word for immense swag. So I would say under the immense swag definition, Kipchoge certainly had a lot of drip in that GQ photo shoot. I don't think drip's going to join my regular vocabulary though. All right, moving on. I think we had some fun last week talking about Alan Webb versus Nick Simmons. Whose career would you rather have? That actually prompted Nick to get on the podcast. So how about another debate? We need the breaking news sound, John. Nick Simmons, folks, listened to the podcast and wanted to be on the podcast. Maybe that's how we get our guests for next week. If you're listening now and want to be on, <laughs> email us or call us or DM us. Anyways, guys, well done, GQ. Well done, Ellie Kipchoge. I loved it. Uh, I'm not hip enough. I thought it was edgy, but I, I thought it was amazing. So but let's talk a little bit about running. That's what this is about, this podcast. I guess that was somewhat running related. The big news, since there aren't any races, is in my mind – we have an Olympic date. It was going to start on July 24th. A year later, that would be July 23rd, and that's what's happened. To me, this seems like the obvious thing. They were going to have a spring. There was debate of a spring Olympics. That would just mess the schedule up. Just move it a year later. So the Olympics are one year later, and Worlds will be a year later than that. 2022, Eugene, kind of what we all were hoping for, guys. Everyone happy with that? Well, the Eugene 2022 is not totally settled. It does seem like, it sounds like World Athletics is going to be looking at dates in 2022, but you've got the Commonwealth Games to deal with. You've got the European Championships. they got to sort of figure out what's the right time to hold it. But yeah, this is the sensible option. Having the Olympics in the spring it just doesn't, wouldn't really have made any sense to me. And look, there, I think there are some people who are saying, oh, we shouldn't be announcing any new dates for any events. Like, we don't know if July 20. 21 what the world's going to look like what if people are still in the quarantine what if people's training is still seriously affected i'm of the opinion okay that is possible and i think the ioc has probably considered that but i think it's good to give athletes something to be excited about something to shoot for and if we get close to the time you know we get up to march 2021 and it's clearly not feasible still then you maybe cancel it then you maybe postpone it to 2022 but I don't see what's wrong with giving athletes a reason for hope right now. And I think everyone, Thomas Bach, the IOC president has said, you know, they hope that the Olympics is the light at the end of the tunnel for a lot of people during time of coronavirus. And I think that's certainly the case for athletics. As soon as I saw, you know, we've got an Olympics, it's going to be 2021. I got excited. I'm like, Hey, that's, that's some, uh, that's a talk. It's a light. He said, it's a light at the end of the tunnel. Totally agree, John. Nothing wrong with giving out the date, but Christine Brennan of USA Today, I mean, she wrote a full article on this, essentially saying, opinion, Olympic leaders misguided in setting new date for Tokyo Games. And essentially, she just argued that the Olympic leaders are tone deaf for, you know, in this time of sickness and death and despair and uncertainty through the world of setting a date for the Olympics. I just 100% disagree. If you're going to move them the next year, why not pick a date? I mean, so they can say it's in 2020 but not, not pick a date, like just for planning purposes, put a date out there. People can kind of start thinking what they need to do and do it. And a lot of people, you know, have time on their hands so they can plan for that. Like nothing wrong with that at all. These arguments are, are absurd to me. Like, oh, it's tone deaf. It's just so easy to bash the IOC. It's so easy to bash the NCAA. Like we need hope. I'm, I'm hoping for professional sports to come back. The NBA, people are talking about putting the playoffs in, in a Las Vegas hotel. Please do that. Or putting the NFL, if we're still in quarantine in the fall, on, on an island or in a stadium. Please do that. Like We need something to do. People are, can, are, are, in their houses are going to go absolutely insane with nothing to watch. 
you know, and I'm not saying this is about, oh, you know, but like, like the mental well-being, the, the enjoyment of life can't just stop. Like, what if this happens for five years and we're in quarantine, so we can't have any sports for five years? Like, at some level, we have to move on. And she's saying tone deaf. What about the people in Tokyo that have spent billions of dollars? They need something to look forward to. They need something to be excited about. So totally disagree with that with that take. I'm glad there's a date. They And they didn't overcomplicate this and try to change the date. Just one year later, boom, move on. Well, I think one question, Dan Lilo brought this up on Twitter, though. So obviously the Olympic trials should stay in I would think I would think it's obvious they should stay in Eugene remember they were first awarded to Mount Sac and they took them away because the stadium wasn't ready now it looks like from what I can tell the Mount Sac stadium was going to be ready more before Hayward Field the new one but I think it's fairly obvious to me keep the Olympic trials in Eugene what do you do with the NCAAs because the NCAAs were supposed to be in Austin Texas this year and they had already awarded them to Eugene for 2021 and 2022 do you keep the NCAA meet in Eugene as it was scheduled in 2021, or do you go back to Austin because they missed out this year? I don't think anyone really would care. Oh, I would care. What? To Austin. The, the food and the beer scene in Austin, so much better than Eugene. And I'm going to be in Eugene for two weeks anyway for the trials. I love going to Eugene and Haywood Field, but give me Austin, baby. Austin 2021. True. We're going to be in Eugene for the trials and all that other stuff. So, yeah, for sure. Let's keep it in Austin. Oh, my God. I wonder how our restaurant's doing, Robert. Cisco's with the one dollar beers. Yes, Cisco's. Everybody in Austin, if you're doing takeout, do it responsibly at Cisco's. Thank you. But and speaking of Olympic news, sort of related to the shutdown, news came out last week that the USOPC, the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee, requested two hundred million dollars in the stimulus relief package. And that got a lot of sort of universal criticism by a lot of Olympic writers. Um, Sally Jenkins criticized it. Alan Abramson criticized it. Phil Hirsch criticized it. Phil Hirsch. Essentially, they're like, look, this is tone deaf. A lot of people are without jobs. And you're asking for a bailout for sports. I think the USOPC saying, look, our federations are going to be crushed by this. They're losing all these events. If there's some proof that like the athletes are really suffering the money would actually go to the athletes then i can see some requests for money but like an athlete's no different than anyone else who lost their job Uh, probably there is some difference in the sense that like independent contractors people working on their own unemployment insurance doesn't really cover them so i think if anything can come out of coronavirus is like how do independent contractors how do these people get protected in downturns because the economy isn't People working for the same company, you know, there's a lot of independent contractors. So if those people can be looked out, you know, that's the case. But it is putting a lot of attention on the salary some of these leaders get. You know, Max Siegel makes over a million dollars a year. If USO track and field's budget slashes, it'll be interesting to see what he actually is going to make this year. Because I think a lot of people were saying, like, what he got paid in general was just unjustified. So... Yeah, I think one of the biggest arguments Sally Jenkins had, it's a very good article in the Washington Post, is... USOPC, they get this money, but and they say, oh, yes, we put it all towards athletes. Like most of this money goes to athletes, though a decent amount. I think they had ooh, 7 million in the executive salary, something like that. I don't know if I'm quoting her directly, but it was a decent amount in the salaries of their executives. But she's saying, look, the USOPC argues that most of this money goes to their athletes in some way or another, but she said it's too complicated. There are too many, it, it's too hard to track this money. And 
they need to rebuild the system to make it clear that it's going directly to the athletes rather than sort of funneling it through these all different methods. I think that's her criticism is how much of this money is going to go directly to athletes. We have really no idea and how it's going to be distributed distributed. And obviously I don't think they're even going to get it from Congress because it's a pretty laughable request. Yeah. I'm sort of amazed that they were almost that ready to go get their hand in the money jar. But I guess they're in touch with Congress a lot, so they kind of knew, like, get your hand in there quick. But you got to also be aware of the environment. And they didn't have a system set up to make sure it goes to athletes. It just looks – it's bad optics. And why are we talking about this? This is obviously a stupid idea. No one approve, agrees with this idea. But you could argue from an executive standpoint they're dumb if they're not asking for it. If Congress is handing out trillions of dollars, why not – you know, considering they give out, like – a local city will give out four or five hundred million dollars for some billionaire to build a stadium in, in their city. Two hundred million dollars nationally is nothing. So I'm glad they didn't get it. Whatever. Maybe you could say they're doing their job by asking for it. Let's talk about something interesting about running. Last week, we had the hypothetical. Whose career would you rather have? Evan Jager. We did not mention Evan Jager at all last week, Robert. I don't know what you're talking about. Excuse me. My brain. Who was it, John? It was Nick Simmons versus Alan Webb. I think you were trying to send a subliminal message to Evan Jager because Alan Webb and Nick Simmons, we debated whose career would you rather have. Turns out Nick Simmons was listening to the podcast. He emailed us. He said, I enjoyed the debate. I thought it was pretty good. Uh, I'd love to be a guest on the podcast because we sort of invited him on. And he answers that question later in in our interview. So, folks, this is how we're going to get our pros. If you're listening to this week's show and you want to be on, give us a call. 844, let's run. So, John, you have one for this week. It's a good one. Yeah. It's three of America's best female distance runners right now. Shelby Houlihan, RJ Wilson, Emma Coburn. And I've been compiling this bracket for the Let's Run Greatest American Distance Runner, uh, which is going to be coming out soon. It's taken a while to put together, but I think it's going to be worth it. Here, Here are some of their credentials, all right? Emma Coburn. Eight U.S. titles, all in the steeplechase. 2013 NCAA mile champion, two-time NCAA steeple champion, former American record holder in the steeple. She has three global medals, third at the 2016 Olympics, 2017 world champion, and 2019 world silver in the steeple. That's Emma Coburn. Ajay Wilson, American record in the 800 meters, 11 U.S. titles, uh, four, four outdoors, seven indoors. She's got two global medals, Third in the 2017 World 800, third in the 2019 World 800. She's also got two indoor silver medals at World Indoors in the 800. 2019 Diamond League champion. Then Shelby Houlihan, American record in the 1500 and the 5000. 12 U.S. track titles, plus one in cross country. She has no global medals, however. Her best finish is fourth in the World Championship 1500 in 2019. Other than that, it was 11th in 2016 Olympic 5,000, 13th in the 2017 World Championship 5,000. She's also the 2014 NCAA 1,500-meter champion. So, guys, out of those three amazing distance women, who do you think has – whose career would you rather have? I'll ask you that first. This is a no-brainer for me. Same with me. I I get the sense – oh, I don't know. I mean, I guess – to me, if you look at just accomplishments, I would want Emma Coburn's accomplishments. She's a world champion. But do you guys complain? Do you guys discount her because it came in the steeplechase? Absolutely. Okay, you guys are both going Houlihan then. 
uh, I mean, it's sad. How do you, you when I said it was a no brainer? Well, I guess Walt and I are genetically the same, and we're raised in the same family. So I, I just thought about this. I was just like, who would I? Basically, I, I viewed this as who would I rather be, and it's not even close. Shelby Houlihan. You just want to date Matthew Centrowitz, Robert. Well, perhaps you know we're both Maryland natives. <laughs> Maryland, not natives, but no. Um, to, to me, this is simple. It, it, so that's official. They're dating, or is that old news? It's old news, and it's official. Okay, so we. This is what we need on the shutdown. Sorry to jump in. We need to get like them on same time, discuss the relationship. We'll kind of have a guest in pairs. We'll get then like people with feuds. We'll get Alberto Salazar and Jerry Schumacher on the same podcast. Oh, that'd be well, great. Hold on. Well, then, you living in fantasy land, you're gonna, you want to get a pro-running couple to discuss their relationship, and then you want to have Salazar and Schumacher, Schumacher John? with people who are the most media-shy people in our entire business. You're going to have them at the same time? Are you insane? Quiet, John. This is what people are going to want. COVID-19 is going to demand it. When the mob comes after people, they relent. The mob will get this. Then we'll have Lopez Lamong and Chalimo to discuss their internet feud. This will be great. This will be great. Well, anyway, Robert was in the middle of giving his answer for Shelby Houlihan, and we didn't really talk about running-related reasons. So your team Houlihan, why, Robert? I mean, if I'm in the same room, my college roommate, he was a 339, 1500-meter guy, he used to say, if you've got a bunch of runners in the room, you can just tell by the way they're acting who's the, who, who's the numero uno. Who, who's the big dog in the room? Who can crush anyone? And if these three people are in a room, there's not even a question mark. Shelby Houlihan could spank them basically at every distance and, and every race flat up. The only race she couldn't beat Emma Coburn in would be the steeplechase. And heck, she's never tried it. Maybe she could if, if she did try it. I mean, 1,500, she would destroy Emma Coburn. 5,000, not even close. 3,000, not even close. 800, not even close. And cross country, John. How good was Emma Coburn in cross country in in the NCAA level? Think about it this way: Houlihan was an 800 runner in college, and yet she was ninth at NCAA cross. Was Coburn even that high? Uh, I don't know. I do know Shelby Houlihan won USA cross last year, but you're ignoring RJ Wilson. She's part of this debate too. RJ Wilson would smoke Shelby Houlihan in 800. She has two global medals to none for Houlihan, and those, I guess, two more if you count indoors. And she's won almost as many U.S. titles, 11 on the track versus 12. Yes, Houlihan, I mean, Ajay is more accomplished on the global level. But I just would not want to, first of all, personally, I don't want to just be an 800-meter runner. It's very specialized. But I don't want to be an event where my success is determined by some rule change. So if, 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 if a court ruling tomorrow changes everything she's basically irrelevant in the 800 not irrelevant but she's you know best she can ever hope for is third or fourth in one of these races whereas you know Houlihan is at least competing with not relying on a court ruling not relying on anything she has a shot to be the very best in the world at an event that everybody does tries to do at least maybe that's not fair to Alger because in my mind, Ajay is the best women's 800-meter runner. Well, she didn't win Worlds last year. But, you know, I, to me, these other women shouldn't have, been, have ever been in the event because, to, to me, from an athletic standpoint, Casper Semenya and those women are intersex and should not have been in women's athletics to begin with. It's a bit hard. But for me, I take Houlihan for sure. Like, I think she's the best. It's a little different because her careers are still going, right? So after the fact, maybe you just look at the medals and that sort of stuff. But right now, 
I'm a mid, I'm a long distance runner. I'd want to be her just because the range is so much better. I think she can beat them and pretty much accept their primary events. I mean, maybe that's not a fair comparison because the person in the middle is going to win most events. But like, she's a better distance runner than Emma Coburn. Ajay Wilson's a better mid distance runner. And then the thing with Ajay is like, okay, she's got she's got everything, but like she was getting beat by the the three intersex athletes for so long. It's sort of hard to, to judge her. And I'm I'm not a mid D runner and she hasn't won everything yet. And then Coburn. So she'll get a silver or a bronze, but it's like th- that event isn't as deep as everything else. She's not going to win the gold right now. I really doubt again. So just to be able to run a three fifty four to do those things that Shelby Houlihan's done the range. I think I would take it after the fact, maybe you take both the other careers before hers. I think this is proof here that there is a bias towards Milers. It's long been suspected. The Miles, the glamour event. And we've put up a woman who has never won anything on the global stage against multiple medalists. And you guys are both saying it's a slam dunk. Houlihan should be ranked above them. I think this is clear mile bias from the founders of let's run.com. I've actually always said that the 800 is my, probably my favorite event to watch in all of track and field, because there's two, you can go from the front, you can go from the back. It's fascinating. Tactics make a role. It's a, it's a great event, but I don't think it's a mile bias. It's just it's a non-one event bias. It's very boring to be an 800 meter specialist. It's very boring to be just a steeplechase specialist. Hulahan, if I, it's like who would I rather be? It's just much more entertaining. If if, if I'm Hulahan, I can think, okay, I'm going to train for the 1500. Oh no, wait, I want to train for the 5000. No, I'm going to do indoors. I can do the 3000. No, I'm going to do cross country. It's just, there's more. She's, a, I'm a distance runner at heart. She has this wide variety of things. She's not a specialist. John, would you rather be AJ Wilson? Would you rather be in the 800? You're not an 800 runner, so you don't know what it's like. I think my first, well, the first question I asked was, whose career would you rather have? And I, look, I, I got to say Coburn. Dude, world champion. All right. Olympic medalist. Those, those are two words that Hulahan can't say that Wilson can't say, and maybe they will be able to say it after 2021, but look, I mean, if you go right, she was the world effing champion in an amazing race, like an all-time legendary American distance race. I want that on my resume, and she's got two other global medals. Like, it's just, I don't know, do do people really judge her? I guess there are people who might say, oh, but it only came in the steeplechase. I don't know if I would give a fuck about that. I... I walk around, I'd say I'm the world effing champ. No one can ever take that away from me. I, I think I would take that in terms of whose career would I rather have. Now, yeah, is it nice to be able to run a few extra d- different events for Houlihan? Sure. But so far, she hasn't proven she's competitive in the 5,000 globally. She hasn't, you know, her best finish is 11th in a world championship. Now, maybe she could do better in the Olympics. I, I'm sure she could do better in the 2021 Olympics. But the 800, she's also... She only broke two, what, last year was the first time she did it. You know, she can move up and down to run these races, but at the global stage, she's a 1,500 runner. John, whose career would who's If I could make you one of those runners right now going forward, who would you rather be? Oh, man. I mean, I might take Wilson. Wilson? Yeah, I think if that's the question, you take Wilson or, or Houlihan. Career overall at this point, yeah, you take Coburn because she does. Why do you take Houlihan over Coburn? I think Coburn's medal chances are better next year than Houlihan's. Who has the best chance to be world champion, Olympic champion in twenty twenty one? Houlihan, Coburn, or well, I think Wilson's number one. Who's number two, Co- Coburn or Houlihan? Agreed. 
you know, Coburn's probably better than Houlihan. I would, I would still, just for the range of events, the stuff you could win, I would rather be Houlihan right now. But you just mean domestically. I mean, she's not winning international events at the 800 or 5,000 right now. I mean, I, look, this is a subjective question. You're allowed to have your opinion. I just think, to me, I don't know. I mean, Shelby Houlihan, obviously it would be pretty great to be Shelby Houlihan, but I think it would be pretty great to be Emma Coburn or Ajay Wilson as well. Well, if, if we're talking financially here, I don't think it's even close. Oh, I of think Coburn's making the most. Of course she's made the most money. New Balance likes to pay a lot of money for, uh, I mean, it's probably not politically correct, attractive women. Now look how many more women they sponsor than men. And w- once you win that goal, the bonus is just going through the roof. Plus she doesn't have an agent. Yeah, Emma Coburn makes bank for sure. All right, well, that's a fun debate. Hey, RJ, Shelby, or Emma, if you guys are listening to this debate and want to chime in, we'd love to have you on the podcast next week. Let us know. Uh, otherwise, we'll try to come up with a few more athletes to debate next week. All right, guys. Since we're doing hypotheticals, here's another one. We've got a busy fall schedule in terms of road races and marathons and half marathons. September 14th, Boston. September 27th, Berlin. October 4th, London. October 11th, Chicago. October 17th, World Half. And November 1st, New York City Marathon. Yes, those are just scheduled. We don't know that they're all going to happen or if any of them are going to happen. But if you're Galen Rupp, what should you do this fall? Well, I think there's the question of what what will he do and what do we want to see him do? Because if I'm if I think Rupp will run Chicago because I think Boston and London have sort of already paid out their money. London's never going to pay Rupp that much to run anyway, even though he does have an Olympic bronze medal. But I think it's usually it's going to be between Boston, Chicago, and New York. I think I would love to see him take a crack at Boston or take a crack at New York. We've seen what he can do at Chicago. He's won Chicago already. We haven't seen what he can do in Boston, John. He's run that several times. Well, he's run Boston once, but he's he hasn't won it yet. He's run Boston twice. He dropped out in 2018 in the weather year, but he hasn't won it. I mean, Chicago, and also I just think. You know, as much as I like Chicago, Boston and New York are just inherently more interesting marathons. I like the courses better. They have more history. I just think they're more exciting than Chicago. John, if he's going to do Boston, he has to do the Boston-New York double, six weeks apart. The shoes make this... Is him injured, Weldon? The shoes make this possible. Oh, gosh. I guess he'd have to come back for the Olympics. But there'd be no Olympic trials. He wouldn't have a marathon for a long time after that. He's not going to do... Oh, this will be interesting, right? Because there's no trials next year. Will, will guys try to do a Boston next year to then the Olympics to cash in on the payday twice? But come on, John. With the shoes, people will need sports if we're even having sports. If there's a mass participation marathon on September 14th, which who knows whether there will be. Come on, Galen. Go for legendary status. Do them both. But you're right. Boston's probably already... Do they have to honor their money that they're already going to pay everyone for April? Or can they shift it around now that some Americans could run it? Oh, I think they'll honor it, but I think that some people are going to withdraw and say, no, I actually want to run a different one. Like Lawrence Chirono, they had already signed up Lawrence Chirono, but he's also the defending champion in Chicago. So does he say, hey, you know, what if he wants to run Chicago instead of Boston? I think they might let him, do they let him out of his contract? It's kind of interesting to debate. But I, I would love personally to see Rupp go to London and race, you know, assuming Kipchoge and Bekele is still there. Now, I think he gets spanked. It probably wouldn't even be the same race, but 
it'd just be interesting if you want to test yourself against the best in a championship, you know, in, in not a championship style marathon, but a fast rapid ref, that's the race to go to. I don't think he'll do it though. Oh, he, my respect level for Gannon Rob, if he goes to London this year, we'll go through the roof. You know, I mean, Shailene Flanagan and her, you know, did one year. Shailene Flanagan? Who's that, Robert? She's the guy with a half British, half American accent. I thought, I mean, this is very easy. She's only one of the greatest American distance runners of all time who's been in your life for almost 20 years and you still can't pronounce her name correctly. It's kind of surprising to me. That's, John, that's that's elitist, someone in the elitist Northeast making fun of Robert's Texas accent. Shailene. It's like... It's like a New Yorker saying someone's name a different way, John. How dare you? How dare you? I've never met anyone. For, I've met plenty of people from the South, and none of them have ever called her Shailene Flanagan. Anyways, she skipped the U.S. circus one time in the fall and did Berlin instead. But I, I don't have any desire to see him. I would really like to see him show up. Um, I, Boston on September 14th. If he's just going to do one, I don't want to see that. It's going to be hot. It's not going to be fast. It's perfectly suited for Rupp. He does well in hot conditions. I don't think he's going to wait. To, to, to I don't think he wants to wait till November, though. That's a long time. But, you know, I've seen him. I, I would like to see him. in. I think the double would be fantastic. That would be amazing. Let's do that. I bet he'll go to Chicago, and I think he'll have a good chance to win because I think the, the field will be not as strong as usual because there's – five majors taking place in the full. Okay, and if the winning time is over 209 like it was in 2017 when he went, I'm putting like a triple asterisk next to it. Particularly, actually, 2017, the Vaporfly existed, and Galen Rupp won a major in 209. And then in 20, was that the same year that, that Des Linden won a major in, what, 244 or something? Uh, what 2018. Was the what was the time, John? Des Linden, 239. Okay, 239. God... Well, yeah, well, this this quarantine is gonna gonna now give Robert reason. He by the end of this quarantine, Robert will have found reason to discount every major marathon victory by every American in history. Okay, a few other guys that I want to talk about real quick uh, for their full marathon plans. I think Kipchoge and Bekele. Remember, there's no Olympics now this summer. They're signed up to run Boston. Uh, they were both signed up to run London this spring. I think it's fairly simple. We just keep them in London and have something for the running community to look forward to on October 4th. Do you guys agree? God, I hope so. Yep. Yeah, I think that's a no-brainer. The one guy I'm very curious to see, Jeffrey Camoror. What should he do? Because he was supposed to run the world half this spring. And then after the world half got postponed... He was a late entry into the Boston Marathon, but then the Boston Marathon was postponed a week later. So now you've got Boston on September 14th, the world half on October 17th, and then he's the defending champ in New York, which is November 1st. If I were Cam Wara, or what I want to see Cam Wara do, I'd love to see him run world half on October 17th. Hopefully Joshua Cheptegei, the world 10,000 meter champion and world cross country champion, is still up to do that race. And then two weeks later run New York and you know if he's a little I think peak for the world half and then see what you can do in New York I'm fine with that but that's what I want to see is world half in New York City for Camora. yeah as a fan that's definitely what I want to see but being in peak half marathon shape what two weeks before a marathon probably isn't the best way to do it but I honestly wonder I mean we always come back to these shoes they help your legs not get as fatigued so can you put a little more speed a little less emphasis on the endurance because the shoes are going to help you not fatigue could he conceivably like still be in fitness to win the world half and run a really good marathon? I'd love to see it. 
Robert, any opinion on what Jeffrey should do this fall, or shall we move on? I think if he's probably training for New York, he's not going to be able to win the, the world half. I kind of like your idea of going all in on the world half and then trying to do New York, but that's not financially that smart because there's probably more money in defending your title. What do you mean financially it's not smart? You sign up, you're still part of the New York field. Why well, not? But if you win, then you get more money for the next year. But I'm just worried, John, yet again, you've shown your sexist tendencies. We have not discussed any female marathoners, what they should be doing this fall. So maybe next week you can become a little more woke. Okay. Always trying to improve myself, Robert. Although you did get on me for the pronunciation of a woman's name, and you did come up with the Aje Emma Shelby debate. The real question is, who would win a backyard marathon between these? The rage going on right now throughout the world, actually not in America because people can still run outside, are either backyard marathons, those seem to be popular in the UK, or balcony marathons. Those are, I've seen some of those in Dubai and Sydney. So currently, there's I think there's one going on live right now that's got some professional announcing. But to date, to my knowledge, the fastest I've seen, it's a little bit suspicious. The marathon investigation needs to look into this because all the times are right around five hours. I think I saw one guy who did one at eight hours. But James Page in the UK, these are the backyards. He did 457, 873 laps. Gary Allen also in the UK, five hours and two minutes. He did 1,254 laps. I mean, that's 50% more laps almost. So I, I'm giving him the nod, even though he was five minutes slower. And he got 350,000 live stream views. So th- those are the backyards. The porch marathons, Colin Allen in Dubai and his wife both did this one. So, you know, the human interest angle is great. But that was only 2,100 laps. How can that only be 2,100 when the backyard's 1,200 it was a 20-meter balcony. Oh, pretty long balcony, I guess. He did five hour, they did five hours and nine minutes. That's pretty good. I mean, for that many, that might be number one in my book. And then another guy, Mark Bennett in Sydney, did 532. But he had to do 5,200 laps. So. Uh, well, first of all, a few, few things here. One, Weldon was most impressed by, which of these backyard or balcony Marathons is most impressive. Weldon's most impressed by Colin, Aylin, and Hilda in Dubai. I, I totally disagree. They finished together. They obviously weren't racing. They weren't going all out. <laughs> Hobby joggers. This is not a fun run. This is a competitive event. This is about pushing yourself to the limit. So they're out. Now, I, I'm curious about these Weldon's saying backyard. That's not the proper term. It's a garden marathon in the UK. John, when you, you lived t- 10 years in, in the UK, did you have a garden? We did. Wow. Is a garden just a sophisticated way of saying tiny yard? No, well, our garden—I mean, it was a—it was a decent-sized yard. It, I mean, garden and backyard is essentially in, interchangeable. Wait, wait, wait! Decent-sized yard. Wait, John, what do they call it? Over there? Are you like a nobleman, or what do you call it? Like when you're like a king or something? No, we were we were more like vassals, Robert. Uh, but do you have any titles or anything? Uh, like in your- that's actually a guy, John of Gaunt, I think. Um, are you a commoner or are you somehow tied into uh i think i was i was probably like everyone when you're born everyone's assigned a number what line what they are in lines of the british throne i think i was like 25 million so i was about like halfway you know it wasn't is that true wow you get a number yeah, my, my, I had a friend who was like in the, he was like 10,000th or something, which everyone was pretty impressed by. 
That's really a thing, John. You really get a number from the government. Really? It's totally true. Wow. Well, oh, and I also left no, off. I'm, no, it, of course, it's not true. You know, it, it's totally fake. I made that up. But I, April, you got me, John. I mean, I guess shit. People fall for this shit in April Fools. I totally believed it, Robert. I was like, how do they calculate? Like, most people are probably equal. How do they determine if you're 25 million or 27 million? John, well played, well played. Also, it's discussing these backyard balcony marathons. There's the living room category, and I left that off because the guy won. He ran 50k instead of the marathon. I'm not sure of his time. And that guy was in China, and I don't think we can really take the numbers out of China as being accurate. I mean, I think just preemptively they should be disqualified. Like, you read these articles and people count the Chinese deaths. and that's not even subtle racism. That's just... Racism? John, it's a totalitarian government that's shown to be have lied about this disease from the outset. So why should we believe their numbers? They don't have a free press. They just kicked out the New York Times to Wall Street Journal. It's almost... Poor journalism in my book to cite the Chinese numbers as being I agree. accurate or under the same scale as they are in a free, free de- democratic country. I'm one of the wokest guys on the planet. I'm always I'm trying to protect women's running against the likes of Castro Semenya. I'm trying to stop xenophobia by promoting the Kenyan runners and the Ethiopian runners. But in this case, I've, I've got to be a little xenophobic. Nothing from China can win this race. Sorry, China, you have screwed over the world. Currently, yes, this isn't North Korea. He's not. It's not like Kim Jong Un is cl- claiming he had it eighteen holes in one or something. I mean, this is a guy running thirty-one miles around his living room in China. Yeah, he may be an innocent bystander, but an innocent victim himself. But he's not winning. It's true. We he he streamed it right. We can an individual acts out of China. We can treat separately than government statistical figures. It's reported by the Guardian. I mean, I, I tend to believe the Guardian when they report this sort of thing. So Jim Walmsley. Bad news, Jim Walmsley fans. Western States has been canceled. Jim Walmsley will not be able to set a course record this year. He wasn't going to do Western States anyways. He's going to Comrades. So why is that bad news? Oh, I thought he was doing both. Oh, yeah, never mind. He was going to do the Olympics and Comrades. Never mind. Oh, yeah. Well, I know. I want to weigh in here with my rankings because I think you're giving so much disrespect for Pan Shanku, who ran 31 miles an eight-meter lap of his living room. So he's just running around two, basically, coffee tables. I think it's between him and Mark Bennett of Sydney, who ran 5,200 laps of his balcony. I mean, those two, look, a garden outside or running in your backyard, I mean, that's luxury compared to running back and forth on your balcony or around your living room with, with an eight-meter you know, loop. I think it has to be one of those two. And the, the danger of the balcony, too. Like, think of just the monotony if you, after like 3,500 laps. If you lose it, you could die. You could just fall over. I mean... Well, I think they have a rail on the balcony. Probably. I know, but you, what if you just can't take the marathon? You just mentally lose it. What do you mean? Second. I think the balcony is easier than doing the living room. Or, or, wait, or in the living room, do you have the TV on or something? I did see the... Wow. Can I take back my xenophobic comment and support the Chinese guy? Because he was also the he was the first one to do it, right? He started this trend. Mm-hmm. We'll have to get David Katz's official course measure and at, you know, we'll come up with diagrams like how you should measure to make sure it's official because cutting the radius and stuff, these could be well short. All right, John, hand out the official rankings, please. Let's run. You trusting me to do this? Yes. I'm going to give number one to Pan Shanku, a man from China. I mean, 31, he ran 31 miles. 60, I mean, 6,250 laps, 6,250 laps. That's the most laps of anyone. I'm giving number two to Mark Bennett, 532 he did 5,200 laps on his balcony. Number three goes to Colin Allen and Hilda, even though they weren't racing. 
they were on their balcony, 2,100 laps. I'm essentially just going by how short your loop was. That's what I'm interested in. Gareth Allen gets number four, five hours, two minutes, 1,200 laps. And James Page, number five, 873 laps. But John, this is embarrassing. This is a running website where we pay attention to the time. I didn't even hear Panchenko's time. Do we even know what time he came through the marathon in or anything like that? Oh. You just totally went for him first. I mean, if this took him eight hours. Four hours? Wait, wait, hold on. Oh! Wait, he says four hours, 48 minutes. That's that's way faster than anyone else. And that was 31 miles. It's, all right, now maybe these maybe I'm starting to doubt these numbers. But wait, he posted proof of the feat on social media site Weibo last week with video of his setup and screenshots from his running app. I I need to apologize to this guy, Mr. Pon Shang. I can't say I mean I can't say the Americans' names. How would I possibly say his name? Shang Chu. It appears that he's from Hangzhou, China, which he's not even from the Hubei province. So he's an innocent victim of this. He has nothing to do with the start of the Wu. He's social distancing when he didn't even need to. Who was saying that he had anything to do with the start of the virus? No one was saying that. Well, who knew we'd have such running debate today? This was good. All right. Well, before we get to Nick Simmons, he's coming very shortly. I just want quickly, Robert, I need a running update. Sub three by age 50 in the marathon. Have you been running outside? There's really no excuses. There's nothing else to do leisure wise. Oh, it's the opposite. When I had my gym open where you pay $20 to run for 20 minutes, on these treadmill type class things, I was doing much better. I'm struggling. Struggling, it's much harder to run on the road. Does the treadmill help you bounce up? It hurts to run on the road. It hurts to run on the road. Yes, I can't believe Robert would rather pay money to run on a treadmill, just the worst possible way you can run, versus running outside. The weather's starting to turn nicer in Baltimore. It's outrageous. You live in sort of a nice wooded area. I'm sure there's some trails around there. It's actually shocking. I've been to Robert's house. It doesn't seem very urban at all. I'm shocked it's within the Baltimore city limits. I have a confession to make. May get me in trouble. May cost us sponsorships. The other day, to try to see what's going on, because I'm thinking about whether I had revenue plummeting starting my coaching site that I said I was going to start for 15 years. Anyways, I did download the Nike Run Plus app to my Apple Watch, and I turned it on, and, and, and they told me to, like, you can do like a 25 minute run and some guy yells in your ear. And then I did do it. I did a workout like five by, was it five by five K? No, five by five minutes. I think it was. Anyways, I was horrified. I'm shocked that people have been talking about this. They have, they did a suggested music for one of these. I pushed the suggested music, John. This was a Nike app and it, it did me some Spotify playlist and they were talking about. I can't even say what they were talking about in this song. I, I feel like an old guy. Point, Robert. What are you t- trying to say? Do you think that a multinational company should be having people... This could be a kid running with an app that suggests songs that are talking about... I don't know how to say it. Sex? What? Spit it out! Sucking... <laughs> Sucking a part of the human body? Yes. In case there's children. Listening. What was the song? Oh my... God. I don't know, man. I, I felt like one of those... I felt like Barbara Bush from 20 years ago. I was like, I can't believe this is the song they've suggested. So uh, I, I need Under Armour, my local Baltimore town, come out with an app. I'll, I'll try try that. Hopefully you have a little bit better music. Maybe Hoka. I've got, I've been wearing my Hoka shoes still, Hoka Bondi sixes. Oh, I, I got news. My sister-in-law, she's part of the Hoka family. She, she wanted to report one of her last acts when you could shop. She bought some Hoka shoes. Hoka Oni Oni, thank you for your sponsorship earlier in the year. 
And everyone, if you guys need shoes, this is the time to get them online. Let's run.com slash shoes. We've got the best shoe reviews on the planet. You can go there. And we may even try to tie in with some local retailers now because they're hurting, but we haven't figured that out. We've got a thread up on that discussing that. And we've got Nick Simmons coming up next. But before that, people, you need to fuel optimally. You need to stay healthy. All your supplements, all your vitamins, we've got you covered. Thefeed.com, they have immunity boosting packs. They have Martin. They have a new AeroFit device. Go to thefeed.com slash let's run to save 15% on your orders. So I guess that does it, guys. Entertaining podcast as usual. I'm wondering if we should do them twice a week, even though nothing's going on, but there's nothing for me to look forward to. Like, I don't even turn on the TV. So um, we want to hear from you, the visitors. Give us a call. Shoot us an email. I did get an update from the D3 runner about the uh, multiples of six challenge about, about what they did to accomplish the feat. But well, How about we share that for next week? And if you have any runners that you want to debate, whose career would you rather have, anything like that, throw send suggestions to Let's Run at letsrun.com. Call our voicemail line. We'll try to debate them for you. My proposal, Robert Johnson or Weldon Johnson? I didn't have to do half the work as Weldon, but I get basically the same amount of fame. Like people don't even know that I wasn't even on the college team or anything. But we got more entertainment next. The interview with Nick Simmons. It's definitely worth a listen. And it's fascinating. And Nick has taught me a very important lesson. We'll talk about that next week. All right, now it's time for our very special guest. This time it's an elite professional, ex-professional runner, two-time Olympian, six-time U.S. champion, world championship silver medalist, but now he's a YouTube celebrity, <laughs> CEO of Run Gum, Nick Simmons. Nick, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm a uh, longtime listener, I, and I heard you guys talking about me versus Webb last week, and I think you said that you should get me on the show. I'm like, hey, I'm down. I'm just sitting. All right, well, we need a ruling. The debate was, whose career would you rather have, Nick Simmons or Alan Webb? I think oh my God. I narrowly went with Nick Simmons, but where do you stand on it? Well, it's really tough. Um, I mean, that American record in the mile will last you know, forever, for a long time. And I, I'm honored to have uh, had dinner with Alan the night before he ran that. So uh, it stands out in my mind as something that was really special you know, at the time. Um, I guess when you're talking about a career you have to weigh a lot of things. And I think that longevity is important, both in terms of earning potential and in, in terms of just the, the, the happiness factor. Um, I think Webb had some moments in his career that were really emotionally challenging for him, the ups and downs, that roller coaster he was on. I never reached that same level in terms of like hitting an American record necessarily, but the consistency I think allowed me to have a, a happier career. And I can't speak for, for Alan, but for me, I would say I, I had a very happy career. I really enjoyed being a pro runner. And my, my steady trajectory to the top um, made, made for a, a somewhat smoother roller coaster than some other pros have been, maybe been on. Yeah. I mean, you were around, long, your career lasted longer at an elite level than Alan's. You mentioned the, the monetary aspect, though. Who do you think made more money in that career, you or Alan? Well, if you're talking about a career, we're still in the middle of our careers, right? I've, I've pivoted all of that that momentum I had as a pro runner and translated it into now being the CEO of RunGum and, and a YouTuber. So I would say I'm, I'm just barely started in my career. But if you're, ask, if you're asking about actually dollars made running around in circles, I would say it probably ended up being pretty close to even. Okay. 
Wait, Nick, you said you're just getting started. I was reading on the Let's Run.com message boards earlier this year that you have a net worth of $72 million. I saw that. I was like, really? Where did I hide it all? <laughs> yeah, that's funny. I, I don't know where people get these things on the internet. Um, my net worth is not $72 million. And even if it was, I'd still be working. I, I love working. I, 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 you guys can tell. I like to stay busy. I like to have my hands in a lot of different jars, um, keep a lot of balls in the air. So if my net worth was $3 billion, I'd still be working just as hard as I am today. I, I, I love having a sense of purpose. I love waking up and creating things and trying to help people out. Well, one, one of the debates we were thinking about before this podcast was we, you know, you posted on the Let's Run message board to promote your book, How to Be a Better Runner, that just came out. And you know, we were like, oh, we not we got to make sure we can verify this and, you know, give you a special handle on the message board. And we verified it. And it was you. But then we wanted to figure, like, what do you want you, your sort of title to be? Because right now I think we put Nick Simmons six-time U.S. champion. Is there a moniker or some other thing that we should let have there to let people know it's you? I think that Let's Run is a unique community in that they're very knowledgeable people that visit your site. Most of them. They, they know the sport. They know what it means to be a six-time U.S. champion. Um, if I'm on YouTube, for example, and I'm connecting with people who maybe aren't as knowledgeable about the sport, I just say two-time Olympian CEO of RunGum. Um, people, for better or worse, the average fan or the average person understands what it means to be an Olympian. They don't understand what it means to be a world silver medalist. So if I say I'm a world silver medalist, they kind of just go, oh, okay, cool. And if I say I'm an Olympian, they're going, no way, even though we as students of the sport understand that it's much harder to win a world medal than it is to become an Olympian. Um, there's fewer world medalists than there are Olympians out there, but you have to, you have to re remember what audience you're talking to. So on let's run, you know, six time champ or two time Olympian world silver medalist, however you want to phrase it. I think we got updated. It just says six time us champion. I mean, we just put it in this morning, but it needs to definitely say run gum CEO, but it could also be, I mean, this could be six time us champion in the race walk or hammer yeah, throw. It doesn't even true. say, it well, doesn't even say 800. And right gi now. given that you guys are so knowledgeable, I'm actually considerably more than a six time us champ because I have several indoor titles, but how about that? No one ever mentions that. And I don't either, but why, what are we going to do with indoors? Are we just going to scrap it? Are we going to continue to have it? I mean, I don't, I don't really know if there's a future for indoor running. You don't think so. I think indoors is like in terms of a spectator, indoors might be even better than outdoors because you're on top of the track and all that stuff you get in there. I mean, I don't know. Maybe it's because I'm from the Northeast, but yeah. I, I think indoors is really exciting. I love indoors as a racer. I love it as a spectator. But today it seems like people are so obsessed with times and you're never going to get fast times on an indoor track or not as fast as you can outdoors. Go to Boston University. It's still not apples and apples. I mean, it's fast. Don't get me wrong, but it's it's kind of a niche sport for the northeastern people, and and the rest of the country doesn't really follow it or participate that much. And you read recently what Seb Coe said about making you know outdoor track and field kind of a, an annualized thing where it's not just hit hard in the summer and then you forget about it. If that really happens, I think you'll see an even more significant decline in indoor athletics. Wait, so what does he want to do? I'm I'm confused. He about wants that. to kind of instead of crushing the diamond league into like three or four months during the summer that culminates in this big event, like the world's or Olympics, he, and maybe I'm just reading between the lines there. It sounds like what world athletics wants to do is space those meets out over a 12 month calendar and kind of hit the Northern and Southern hemisphere. Uh, so that you have, you know, an audience 
getting excited about track year round rather than just a couple months out of the year. But, but, but the best thing about the Diamond League is you have all the best stars and all the events competing for the same three or four month period. I mean, if you start spreading out events like this and having some people in Australia in January and February and then some people in the European summer, and especially with the championships, I mean, who's really going to be racing outdoors that much in January and February when the championships they have to peak for in August? Well, the way that we've been doing it, the way I did it, I, I was racing in January and February, and I'd go down to Australia and race their outdoor season. So I think that there's a demand from the athletes to make money and have races that time of year. I think there's a demand from the, from, from the fan base that wants to see races. As far as getting people to race each other, the IAAF, or I guess they're called World Athletics now, and, and the USATF, and everybody has done a horrible job of making it advantageous for the pros to line up against each other. You know, you see all these big names dodging each other. And everyone says, oh, they're cowards or they're, you know, they're, they're not brave enough or some excuse. Make it financially worth their time. It, they, the pros will race wherever it is financially advantageous for them to do so. So you want to see um, who, who would be the big names now. Uh, Lyles and Coleman and, you know, um, DeGrasse. You want to see them all line up against each other. Make it worth their time. Make, make it financially uh, exciting for them to do that. But like where where is the World Athletics just going to get this money? I mean, they oh, they have the money. I would love for you guys to get do a really in depth analysis of World Athletics budget or USA uh, USOC USATF's budget. All the money goes to admin. It all you know it, it pays those hyper inflated salaries that everyone living out in Monaco makes. For those of you listening that doesn't know, World Athletics is based in Monaco, and they have absurd salaries. That's where all the money's going. The money needs to be going to the athletes, and I've been preaching that story for. 12 plus years now yeah it's kind of a interesting dilemma the whole thing of indoors versus outdoors i mean when i was coaching in college i at first you know i grew up in texas i wasn't a big indoor fan like you nick west coast south but then coaching i i liked it better because yes it makes a small crowd look large it's, it's it's you know but the thing that annoys me about it is to me what's important in running is whatever the athletes decide is important i guess whatever the sponsors decide is important because when we had world indoors in portland all the West Coast people, all the Nike people did it, you know. You got excited about it. Yeah. yeah. And then, you know, so it's the head-to-head matchups and stuff like that. I'm curious, you know, maybe you'll be one of the few people that kind of tell us this. Obviously, the most of your money when you're a professional runner comes from your endorsement contract, whether it was Nike with you for most of your career and then Brooks at the end. But do you make, other than the prize money, are you getting appearance fees? Like how much, what, what percent of your income could come from, running in some random meet like if you'd run in the Paris diamond league are they paying you yeah. to show up tell us a little bit about that that's a really good question i had a youtube video out um maybe six months ago that talked about the three main ways that athletes pro athletes pro runners make money sponsorships appearance fees and prize money and i can't speak to everybody's contract um you know i think if you're if you're a pole vaulter shot putter you're probably making a lot more percentage of your income in appearance and a prize uh, for me, as a you know guy that was ranked top ten in the world for I don't remember half a dozen years, and number one in the U.S. for half a dozen years, I would say the breakdown for me was probably two thirds shoe deal, one third appearance and prize, and I only started making really good appearance fees after certainly after I made my my first Olympic team, maybe halfway through my career when I'd kind of built up a name for myself, I was starting to command decent appearance fees. Towards the end of my career, I was making, you know, really good appearance fees. But I, I knew a lot of athletes that were big names, you know, names that household names almost that weren't getting appearance fees. So that's really hard money to get. 
Um, and then the prize money is what it is. Most of that uh, information is public. So like, what's the biggest, you don't have to say the name of the race, but what's the biggest appearance fee you got? And one thing I don't understand about the appearance fees is kind of like, if they don't offer it to you, like let's say Milrose games, like where else are you going to go? I mean, you're yeah. not going to get paid. So it's kind of like they're almost doing it as a, I always sort of joke that the endorsement contracts from the shoe companies are a little bit of charity too. <laughs> yeah. I mean, to a certain extent they are. Um, I don't know that the shoe companies always recruit their investment, rarely recruit their investment. Um, I would say right after I won my world silver, I could, I could ask for a $10,000 appearance fee from some of the diamond league mates and I could get it not always, but I would ask for it. Um, you know, but that was for maybe a couple of years during my career. Some other athletes could ask for considerably more than that. But yeah, if you have a medal, you're, you're likely to get a, an appearance fee because the way they, that world athletics ranks those diamond league meets and permit meetings is based on how many, you know, medalists you have, how many Olympians you have. Um, so yeah, pretty good money once I had that silver medal around my neck, but Prior to that, if I got one or two, maybe three grand in appearance fee, I was pretty pleased with that. Sometimes I'd race a race that I really didn't want to run simply because it paid really well in terms of appearance and prize. Sometimes I'd race a race for absolutely free just because it fit into my season really well. And I knew I needed that as a rust buster or in training to get ready for a championship meet. All right. So Nick, let's talk a little bit more about your career. One of the things I'm kind of interested in, we, we were looking through your results and some of your rivals, like, you know, Dwayne Solomon, Kadivas Robinson. I guess I was interested in who was the person, like who would you think was the biggest rival during your career? That's a really good question. I think KD really stands out in my mind because he was kind of a hero of mine. He was the number one ranked U.S. runner when I was coming out of college. And uh, I just wanted to beat him so bad. You know, I, I finished second to him my first loss, I think in like seven years in the 800. I went undefeated from my sophomore year of high school to my senior year of college in the eight. And then when I finally lost, it was to KD. And I'm like, dang, I don't like this feeling of losing. I'm going to get you, KD. And I did a year later at the 08 trial. So he and I had just a really great rivalry for a long period of time. I think the fact that he was you know, a front runner and I was a sit and kicker, he stands out as the best rival that I had um, domestically. Now, not to discount Dwayne Solomon because he kicked my ass a few times as well, but it didn't seem to go on for as long. Dwayne hit it really hard for a couple years, whereas KD was around for, I mean, the majority of my career. Yeah, I, I looked up the stats here um, on Tillistopsha. They have you 13-10 and 10 against Robinson for your career, but it's 18-10 and 10 if you count five events where he didn't make the final and you mm-hmm. did. And with Solomon, you're winning much more often, 14 and four. So, yeah, Dwayne wasn't as consistent. You know, KD was so good for so long. I mean, he ran into it well into his mid 30s, and he was always very, very competitive. Well, it's interesting, though, because the, the year you finally lost USA's, you won five straight from 2008 through 2012. You get beaten by Solomon in 2013, but then that's the year you finally win your world medal. Is that like weird for you to square those two things? No, I think that it was premeditated. I went to Coach Roland at the time and I said, Roland, I'm not ready for USA's. I'm going to get my butt kicked. And he said, yeah, you are. And I'm like, I'm the five-time defending champion. You can't let me go in there unprepared. He goes, you're probably going to lose to Dwayne, but I'm peaking you for August. You're going to win that medal finally. And he was right. I mean, I'm, how, I can't can't preach the the school of Roland any, any more than I am right now. He is so good at peaking an athlete for when it really counts. And he always viewed USA's as an afterthought. He's like, this is just a pain in my, my rear that I have to get us through so I can get you to the meet that actually matters, which for him was always global championships. So he, he very specifically that year 
sent me into USA's Raw so that I could continue to taper and peak for for the World Championships. Well, yeah, you're one of the guys who was in that incredible 2012 Olympic final as well, where I think seven of the eight guys ran personal bests in that race. What was it like being in that one, London 2012? You know, a real bittersweet moment, the pinnacle of my career. You know, I ran uh, 142.9 there, and that was at the time almost a full second faster than I'd ever run in 800 meters. So on the one hand, I'm really proud that I, you know, brought the best race of my entire career in, in the Super Bowl of track and field, the highest level of competition possible. But it wasn't good enough for a medal, you know. So I, I, I like to pat myself on the back for controlling the things that I could control which was namely my training and my, my mindset going into that race. But to do that and to leave, you know, with, with a time that probably would have won a medal at almost every single Olympic games ever, um, and not have a medal, it hurts a little bit. It's bittersweet. Yeah. Well, I think the legend before that race is that Rudisha, I think he told Timothy Keedem, his tent Kenyan teammate. I'm not sure if he told anyone else, but he basically said, look, if you go with me, you're going to die. I'm taking this thing out like 49 low, 48 high. 48 high, yeah. Yeah. Did he did he say that to you guys? Like, did you know what was coming in that race? No, he had kind of hinted at it in a the presser after the semis. He said, I'm going to run the world record in the finals. And if anyone wants to go with me, they're welcome to. But just so you know, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to run wire to wire and set the world record. And I think right after that, the press asked me, Nick, what do you think about that? I said, I'll believe it when I see it because the chance of him being able to do that is very slim. You know, his work, current world record, he had rabbits. He was fresh. He didn't have two races in his legs. I said, I'll be very surprised if David runs the world record. And then he goes out and smashes it. So it shows what I know. I mean, what are you thinking when you see that clock? It's 48 high and he's out there in, in first place. Are you thinking he's going to die or are you like, yeah. oh my God? Yeah, Roland and I had talked about the race strategy going in. And I said, this is going to be Dave Waddle 2.0. I'm going to be so far off the back of the pack, people will think I was injured. And every single person that tries to go with David is going to die a terrible death that last hundred. And I will roll him all up and I will be the silver medalist. I knew I wasn't going to get David. I didn't think so. And Roland didn't think so either. But I thought there was a really good chance that I'd be the silver medalist. Um, and then nobody died. You know, you saw me in, my, in the home stretch picking people off. I just, people didn't die the way we thought that they were going to. So, I mean, Nick, you're really good at, at running a coming from behind and running your own race. Was that something that just sort of came intuitively? Like you, uh, the sense of pace is really important in the 800 or did you practice like running, you know, 26s and practice so that you would know what that feel like. And then also specifically for that Olympic race, do you look, do you catch the split on the scoreboard? I mean, every stadium is a little bit different. Like, do you know what your split is when you're running 400? Like, yeah. talk, talk about those two things. Uh, I'll start with the split con uh, question. So there, there is a clock every hundred meters. So you can like glance and especially a big clock at 200 and a big clock at 400. So as you're coming through, you can glance and have a pretty good guess within a quarter of a second, what your split is. Uh, so I did know what my two and four split were. Um, and I had a you know pretty good guess of where the people in front of me were going to be at. So like when I came through, I think I was 50.5 in that race in London. I saw David 15 yards ahead of me. And I'm like, he must have come through in 48 high. I'm like, this is playing out perfectly. I was so excited that the race was playing out exactly as I w had expected it to, which is kind of rare in the eight. So getting to your first question about pacing, you know, as a student of the sport, I, I, I knew that most great 800 meter races were run with a plus two second differential. So for me and, and, and most humans, unless you're really sprint focused and then maybe you're looking for like a plus three second differential, I always tried to run 
that nice plus two to plus three second differential. So in London, I went out in 50.5 and I came back in 52.4. And that's just, you know, I was running within myself and really spreading that energy out over 800 meters. Similarly, a year later in 2013, I ran a plus two second differential. It's just that the 50.5 or, or whatever that split was in 2013 put me at the front of the pack rather than the back of the pack. So everyone always talked about me radically changing up my strategy in 2013. I'm like, no, I just ran the exact same strategy. It just put me in a different place in the pack based on what other runners decided to do. Well, yeah, I mean, it's different. The big difference is Rudisha wasn't in that race in 2013. Exactly. Yeah. So it didn't, it didn't string out quite the same way. Yeah. What was it like racing against him? I mean, I looked up your career record and you are zero for um, 20 or something. Oh, oh, and 12 against David lifetime. Did you ever think like going in? Oh, he might be vulnerable. Like what was the closest you came to beating him? I think you go into a race knowing that anything can happen, right? Someone can get tripped. Someone can come in injured. Anything can happen. So I always stepped on the line knowing there's a chance that I beat David today. Um, I think that of oh you know and I raced professionally for twelve years. He's the only person I never beat at least once. I got Mo, Mo Amon once. I got you know I got everybody once. I'd never beat David. So I I always kind of joke. I said I never raced against David Rudisha. I just ha- was fortunate enough to have him as a rabbit in my races a few times. He didn't step off the track though. You know he kept going and kicked my butt so many times. It, if I look back on it, do I wish I'd been born in maybe, a, you know, five years earlier and, and could have hit maybe that lag, that lull before Rudisha came out? You know, maybe, but I probably would never, never have broken 143 if that had been the case. I, I'm actually just eternally grateful to have had the privilege of running against him, especially in that 2012 final. You know, I was part of history and it was, it was an honor to be part of history. And as I get farther and farther removed from my professional career, I just smile and, and, and more gra- grateful, expressing and attitude of gratitude for all that I had those incredible moments rather than feeling any bitterness or frustration over the career. So there were a lot of great moments, but what do you consider to be your greatest moment? When you look back on does, does one event, you know, was it making the first Olympic team? Was it that medal in 2013? Yeah. Was it the 142.95 in the Olympics? What do you consider your best accomplishment? Um, that's such a great question. The silver medal is probably my best accomplishment. Certainly on paper, it stands out as, as the highest achievement I have. Uh, 12 stands out for me as my best psychological achievement. You know, so many things that had to go, that, that I had to control to be able to do that and to be able to really, like I said, run the best race of my life in the highest pressure situation ever. Um, but if I look back on my entire career and say, what's the most memorable moment? It's 08. And making my first Olympic team because that moment changed my life forever. It's uh, like I say, for better or for worse in this world, there, there are two types of professional runners, those that are Olympians and those that aren't. That's just the way society seems to separate them out. And, and the day I punched my, my ticket uh, onto my first Olympic team, it, it radically changed my life forever. Well, it's also one of the most famous races in U.S. distance running history, the Oregon sweep and weeding coming from nowhere, the dive with uh, Robinson and Christian Smith, just, I mean, all around epic race. Yeah, and I go back and watch that sometimes, and you know, I'm, I'm stuck, I'm boxed in with 150 to go, and I kind of have to shoulder my way through the pack. And, you know, in a different scenario, I get tripped up and I fall there, and I don't make the team. And I have to wait four more years. And I probably wouldn't have trained for four more years. I'd have gone and done something else. Like how incredibly different could my life have been if one 
foot tangles up with my foot, you know, just a fraction of an inch different could have changed my life forever. You know, it's, it's just, it's mind boggling to think about how, how different things could have ch- turned out in that scenario. You think you would have walked away from the sport if you didn't make the Olympic team? I, I, I you got to remember, if you go back, I was a division three kid, like running was a hobby of mine. I was on track to become a doctor. I'd have been a fourth generation surgeon. And I had put that goal on a back burner for two years to see if I could make the 08 team. But I was getting paid. I mean, my first contract with Nike was peanuts. You know, minimum wage workers probably made more than I made on that contract. So it was uh, it, it was literally extending my college existence, living like a college kid, a broke college kid for a few more years to try to see if I could make the Olympic team. And if I hadn't made that team, I like I don't know if I would have gotten a contract and then you know, I, I would have gone and gotten a job somewhere else or gone back to school. So um, I'm so grateful for the way things turned out. You know, I really loved my professional career, but I I was in it to become an Olympian. And uh, I don't know that I would have would have waited four more years to try to prove that to myself. Crazy stuff. So at, at the end of your career, um, I guess it was, what, 2015 was the last team you made. But you made the decision not to go to Worlds sort of out of a protest of logos right logo it really had to do yeah with the way that the usatf was in bed with nike and and treating giving nike uh, athletes uh preferential treatment to other athletes so can you explain that to people who sort of aren't familiar with maybe yeah so if you look at usatf's and and i i can't speak this was what five years ago but their operating budget at the time was about 40 million and 20 million of that came in from nike so they were, you know, really beholden to Nike, and and Nike put a lot of uh, muscle on USATF to to do certain things and treat their athletes a certain way, and they were violating the rights of other athletes who weren't with Nike, myself included, and you know, telling me I couldn't wear Brooks training gear when I wanted to, when I was, you know, within my rights to do so, telling me in a letter not even to bring my Brooks gear with me to Beijing for the World Championships, and I just said I'm I'm not signing your your bullshit contract until you write it. Clearly, one, it was a very ambiguous contract, and two, um, you know, stop, stop forcing me to represent your sponsor in in instances where I'm within my rights to represent my own sponsors. And they refused to clarify. They refused to uh, to recognize my right as a Brooks athlete to endorse my own sponsor when I when I chose to. And so I just said, I'm not signing this. And we kind of butted heads, and they called my bluff, and I said, I'm not bluffing. <laughs> And ultimately got left off the team, which was really shocking for a lot of people because I was the defending silver medalist. So they, they you know, wanted me on the team, and I was in great shape. I just won U.S. championships that year, um, but I don't regret it. I think it was the right move at their time, um, and I, I sure do today at the age of thirty six, this this far removed from it. I'm just so grateful to not be bogged down with that bullshit. I I think USATF is just such an incompetent mess. And I'm so grateful to not have to work with them anymore. How, how calculated was that move? Because I know when it happened, there were people on the message board saying, oh, he's probably not even in that good shape. He's just doing <laughs> this to like, as a publicity stunt. Yes, it was a publicity stunt to some effect. I mean, everything I did in my career was a publicity stunt. Every time I stepped on the track was a publicity stunt. Um, that's what being a professional athlete is. Was it calculated? Yeah, I read the, weighed the pros and cons to it. But was I out of shape? That's the most laughable thing because I had just won the U.S. championships a couple weeks earlier. So I'd proven fitness. Um, but yeah, I mean, and, and, and I said this in my career. I said it in my, in my autobiography. I'm a businessman. I, I weigh everything that I do as a kind of a cost-benefit analysis. What's it going to cost me to do this? 
and what will be the ultimate benefit? And I thought to myself, I could go out and win another medal. I know what that's worth. Um, I, you know, know what making another team's worth. I thought to myself, it's better for me to leave this lasting mark to create this part, this part of my legacy, to create this moment with the fans who had really supported me. It was, it was the right move at the time. If it had been an Olympic year, it might have been different, but it was a world year. And, and so I, I think I made the right decision. It is interesting. One thing I always think about with that is your decision, or I guess, yeah, they, them leaving you off the team paved the way for Clayton Murphy to go on the team instead. Yeah. And he makes the semifinals. And then next year, he wins the bronze medal in Rio. And I always wonder, like, how much did that experience help him? Would he have ended up meddling if he didn't have that world's experience the year before? I don't know. I think it's an interesting thought. I, I will say this. Clayton was so res- so respectful um, in 2015 when I well, this was all going back and forth and he said, Hey, I, I don't know what you're thinking right now, whether you're going to sign it or not, but I just want you to know if you don't sign it, if you're left off the team, you know, I'll be very grateful and I, I won't let you down. I'll go out there and, and give it my best, you know? And I, I thought, Hey, if I have to, if I have to, you know, be left off the team, if I have to, you know, make my bed and then lay in it, I, I'm really grateful that it's such a nice, respectful, hardworking young man that's going to go out there and represent Team USA. So it, it in some ways made my decision even easier. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. So, I mean, you kind of transform, helped transform U.S. Distance, distance running. I mean, from 1999 to 2007, I think that's eight global outdoor championships in a row. We had zero finalists in the men's 800. And then you made four in a row. And then you get that silver medal in 2013. And then all of a sudden now we got Clayton Murphy the year after you retire, basically, I guess you were still, did you, we overlapped a year or so. Yeah. But you know, 2016, the year after this, you know, you sitting at worlds, not only he gets the Olympic medal, probably what you saw your whole career at the beginning of his career, he a gets the Olympic medal B beat your PR by 0.02, I think. So, I mean, I think there'd be part of me naturally be like, darn, I don't want this guy to over eclipse me like was there a little bit of like oh i can't believe he did that or are you excited for the u.s i was largely excited for the u.s i mean there's a part of me that's like dang it you know he did what i wasn't able to do but i think that almost brings me back to how we started this whole conversation which was look at a career right clayton right now has a has a bronze medal around his neck but you know he's he's struggled in the last couple years a little bit and i i wonder what his full professional career looks like um brazier that's a different story. Brazier has one heck of a, of a resume right now. And I, I only see him running, you know, continuing to run really well. So if you look at all of the, the, the men's 800 meter professional runners, you know, I, I have to look at my career and be very proud of it. I accomplished all that I set out to do, except maybe one goal, which was win an Olympic medal. And, uh, you know, I'm proud of the longevity. I'm proud of the consistency and I'm grateful for the, the, the moments that I, I keep coming back to happiness most pro runners, and I'll you know drop a little little behind the scenes uh, news for you guys, a little wisdom here. Most pro runners are clinically depressed most of their life. I, I'm sorry to say, and I know I was. I know a lot of my teammates are and were. It's a really hard lifestyle. Uh, you're putting all of your time and energy, making all these sacrifices for these moments, and a lot of pro runners are really really depressed. Um, and and I was able to mitigate a lot of that by having a relatively stable career, both financially and in, in terms of trajectory, improving a little bit each year. But that roller coaster that most pro runners are on leads to some really, really tough times. So I'm, I'm grateful for my longevity and consistency because I think it made me a happier pro runner, certainly happier than a lot of the people that I was training with. 
but you you just said you were clinically depressed. I mean, were you seeing seeing someone like a psych, uh, a therapist or anything during your career? Like, have you overcome that? What's what's your story like with that? Yeah. So when things were going well, I, I loved my job. I loved training. I loved traveling around the world. I loved racing. But if if something went wrong, injuries, for example, you know, 2014, I write in in my autobiography that I was suicidal for much of that year. I'm not joking when I say that. Um, I worked with a sports psychologist for the vast majority of my career. His name's Jeff Trosh, and he'd get calls from me, you know, at 2 a.m. and and they weren't happy calls. And I think that a lot of that was me not being able to put certain things in perspective. But a lot of that is really, truly the sacrifice that goes into being a world class athlete. Um, I, I missed a lot of time with my family, a lot of time with my friends, major life milestones with my family. I wasn't able to maintain a relationship because of being on the road so much. I mean, it's a hard lifestyle. I wouldn't take it back for for the world. I'm really glad I went through it. It made me a stronger person, but it is a really challenging uh, lifestyle. And I'm, again, grateful that I was able to have some consistency and some financial success that allowed me to kind of weather some of those storms a little bit better. So are you over that now? I mean, is it is it totally different now that you don't have the stresses of competition? I I know this will sound crazy. If I went out to the track, I think I did the other day. I, I struggled to break 440 in a mile. You know, this is coming from a 356 miler. And I am so much happier on a day-to-day or year-to-year uh, basis right now than I ever was as a pro runner. I'm, I'm slower, fatter, out of shape, and uh, I'm not making as much money, but I'm way happier now than I was as a pro runner. Do you think that's a, that's an issue that needs to be addressed then by governing bodies or like do athletes need to speak up about this? Because I feel like depression, I don't know, I, I've heard some athletes cop to it, but it doesn't. See, you seem to think it's much more wide, widespread than it's being let on. I think in our society in general, talking about depression um, is, is some, or mental health is, is kind of, it's getting better. We're, we're having more open conversations as people like Michael Phelps and some others are stepping up and talking about it. But uh, no, I mean, for the most part, when a pro athlete says they're depressed or says they're struggling, everyone jumps on down their throat and says, you have a great life. I'd kill for your life. You need to shut up and appreciate what you got. And so I didn't talk about it a lot when I was a pro athlete. I was very open about working with a sports psychologist and I'm really open about it today now that I'm retired. But I do think that we need to have, you know, more, more resources for our professional athletes for Team USA because I know that they're going, especially right now. Man, I'll tell you what, if I was training for an Olympic season and I, I had sacri- made all the sacrifices to get to that season healthy and fit and ready to go and then this COVID-19 c- canceled everything for a year, I would have been suicidal and I would have really, really struggled through this. And my heart goes out to the athletes that are sitting on the sidelines right now, ready to race, ready to prove themselves and make their team, and they aren't able to do so. But don't you think canceling was the right call? Because the, the more I thought about it, I'm like, well, why are we canceling four months out? But then I thought, God, the pressure, the stress of the athletes of not knowing if you're a swimmer, of trying to find a neighbor's pool that you could swim back and forth laps of, yeah. sort of at least helps them a little bit. Yeah, once once everything got delayed and canceled, you know, then I think you have to postpone it. That's the right decision for the mental health and the physical health of our athletes. As far as canceling everything and shutting down the global economy, I probably sit closer to the uh, to the more conservative side that maybe we we have gone too far. But that's for economists and uh, immunologists to talk about, and and uh, I have my own opinions on that. But whether they're right or wrong, you know, I guess, guess we'll find out in a year from now. All right. Well, let's let's talk to about a little bit about your current life now. You say you're way happier than on your career. You said you couldn't couldn't maintain a relationship when you were, you know, as a pro athlete. 
did do a famous date with Paris Hilton at one point, <laughs> yeah. so we, we want to talk about that. But now you're happily engaged, right? Yeah, I am engaged. I'm, and it, so provided we're still allowed to get married, we're supposed to get married in, on May 23rd here in my backyard. <laughs> oh, I thought it was December. This may not be allowed, Nick. I, I thought I read on Instagram it was December. Did you get engaged in December? Uh, we got, we got um, engaged May of last year. And then we, I don't know what about December, but we're getting, we're supposed to get married in my backyard May 23rd. And as long as my family can come and her family can come, we'll, we'll still do that. So let's go back to your more famous date. By the way, congratulations on the engagement. You guys look fantastic on your Instagram. I'm not a big Instagram person, but I went on there. And, <laughs> Thanks. Uh, you know, they always talk about uh, outkicking your, what's, what's the term? Outkicking your coverage, Nick. Did a very good job. I'm, I'm surprised there aren't threads about your fiance on our <laughs> Let's board. keep it that way. Yes. I love, I love the message boards for certain things. I, I, you know what I wish? I'll just say this about the message boards. And I didn't read them a lot as a, as a pro because, again, trying to keep that confidence and that psychology going can be tough on those message boards. But I wish, I wish it wasn't anonymous. You know, if people actually had to put their name behind what they were saying, be, people would be saying a lot of different stuff. These, these people that like to troll and trash and I'm like, would you be doing that to my face? And I, I guarantee you they would not. So I wish, I wish it wasn't anonymous. I know you can't do that, but that would, that would be, if I could wave my wand and change the message boards, I would get rid of anonymity. Well, this is one question we had for you. Have you ever posted on the message boards anonymously? I have not. I have, well, I probably have. I mean, I, listen, guys, what have you been around since 2000? Like when I was in college, I was reading the boards. When I was an early pro, I was a fan of, you know, I was out there. I'm sure I have it some point posted anonymously. Now, you know, I'm registered. If I post on the message boards, you'll see it as Nick Simmons, real Nick Simmons. Um, so, you know, it's me. I, I stand by what I say. I, I'm not one to, you know, pull my punches. And, uh, and if, if you want to trash me, then at least do it with your real name so that, uh, so that I can point you out in a crowd and say, you're that little shit that was trolling me. <laughs> All right, so yeah, listeners, if you want to get called out in public by Nick Simmons or insulted in public, you know, go ahead, post under your real name, and then you have that honor. Jonathan, I'll say this: if you if you see me in Eugene and you really have an issue with something I do or something I say, and you say it to my face, I will have nothing but respect for you. But if you hide behind some anonymous name and do it on on you know a message board, you're just some anonymous little coward, and I have zero respect, and I won't even take what you're saying serious. So put your real name to it, and we can have a real discussion. There you have it. That is true. Though. I think people really forget that you're talking about real human beings. I mean, I'm, I, and I, I sometimes the, with the running, it, it, it comes to me more. I'm a big baseball fan. I went on this Orioles forum. I'm like, they're they're telling you trade this person, cut this person. I'm like, but there's real life implications. You know, for if sure. you send this guy down for a day, I mean, it's just kind of crazy, easy to forget. I think a lot of times they're tro- the, the the posters are trolling each other, you know, rather than trolling me, but. Why would you want to do that? There's so much. There's so much hate and frustration in the world. I I've always been the kind of guy that's like, let's lift each other up. And I think that there are some people out there that just want to tear others down, and that's frustrating, sad. I always think of myself when I like want to like rip into somebody online. I'm like, what if what if they're at home right now and they're really struggling? You know, they're they're tearing other people down. Likelihood is that they're tearing other people down because they're in a bad place themselves. I don't want to exacerbate that situation for them. So I usually fire off some, you know, I, I compose some mean, witty message to fire back, and then I just delete it, and I say, I hope, I, I hope that their day is better tomorrow. All right, I keep talking about Paris Hilton, but yeah, I let's talk here. about Paris. Now, John's read all of your books. Unfortunately, I have not. Although I did purchase your training log, I got to find oh, it somewhere. That's for free. You can have the training log for free. 
Oh, it's on. It's, it's for free now. Wow. Yeah. Go to rungum.com. You can get it for free. My 2012 training log. The only year I kept a training log. How how like appropriate is that? Pretty cool. That's pretty great. I think that would definitely be worth checking out. I do say Nick's first book, uh, Life Outside the Oval Office, definitely recommended read. That's a good one if you want to know inside track and field stuff. But tell us about the, and you can actually learn, that's where I read about the Paris Hilton thing. Yeah. I was trying to explain to Robert, this was basically a publicity stunt, right? What's your version of it? So I, I would call it mostly a publicity stunt. Um, let me just set it up for you if you haven't read the book. Um, I was working with a publicist in LA and we really wanted to capture, you know, we knew that 2012 was likely to be my last Olympic Games. Really kind of do something that set me apart. You've got about 10,500 Olympians in any given Summer Olympics. And his his job was to set me apart from them. He, and he said, what are you going to do that's different? Running around in circles isn't different. Everybody's out there doing that. What are you going to do that's different? I said, I don't know. You know, like, you tell me. You're the publicist. He said, we need to get you on a date, and I was a young single bachelor, we said, we need to get you on a date with a really famous A-lister. And I'm like, you know, I, I rattled off a list of, of women that I was attracted to, A-list celebrities. And he goes, well, I don't know any of them, but I know P- Paris Hilton's publicist really well. And I'm like, holy cow, like, you get me a date with Paris Hilton, I'll fly down to LA tomorrow. And true enough, he connected us. Uh, we, we set a time to meet. I got on a plane, flew down. And sat down and had, you know, drinks with her for a couple hours. And it was a really incredible experience. I, I don't know that, you know, I'm right for her or she's right for me. But I'll tell you what, it was a really, really wonderful experience to sit down and, and chat with somebody who's lived a life like that. Um, and very, believe it or not, down to earth, um, kind person. So that gets you a lot of publicity. But ha- what impact does that have financially on you? Does it have any impact nowadays? I mean, or does that sort of... You know, I mean, right now it sounds like most of your money is coming from RunGum, right? That's how you make your money currently? Uh, partially. YouTube pays well. I still have some deals with, uh, with sponsors here and there. So I guess, I guess going back to like, let's talk about a career. You know, what is a career? And for the most part, we've been talking about a career as the day I start running professionally, I get my first Nike contract to the day I hang up my spikes and say, thanks, Brooks, but I'm done running professionally. That's kind of what my quote unquote pro career was. But for me, I knew that I always wanted to be an entrepreneur. I always wanted to be a businessman. And I thought to myself, the bigger I can create this following and, and, and interact with my fans and give back to them and create this kind of like community, the better chance I have of launching a company one day or creating products that, that help them. And so I'm, I'm talking from way back at the age of 22 when it was just Facebook. I wanted to build up, for back of a letter word, my, my brand, the Nick Simmons brand, so that I could one day create a, create a business. And, and, you know, you see entrepreneurs doing this all the time. You look at Aubrey Marcus with on it, um, and Joe Rogan, what they've built together. You look at, uh, you know, any modern in any modern influencer or business owner, their, their ability to monetize a following is, is hugely critical. So I always laugh, you know, people say my career ended in 2017. I'm like, that's when my career finally started. That's when I wasn't a slave to running 70 miles a week. And I use that tongue in cheek. I loved training. Um, but I wasn't beholden to getting those workouts in every day. I could now take that energy and that time and translate it into building something that didn't have an expiration date. My legs have an expiration date. Run gum can live on, you know, for, for, for forever, hopefully. So today, you know, I consider myself, um, part influencer, part business owner. Um, and my income reflects that, you know, not talking about net worth cause I do own a large chunk of run gum, but from a cash flow standpoint, uh, my, my, my cash flow, my monthly income is kind of split between 
uh, my influencer business, Nick Simmons LLC, and my business, uh, Run Gun, where I'm the CEO. So how does that work? I mean, you sell a pack of gum for what? Dollar eighty-eight at Walmart. And how much do you make off that? Like, how do you? How much do you sell it to Walmart for? If you want it, yeah. where do you make the gum and stuff like that? Yeah, so you're talking about gross margins and net profits and everything. And if you want to become an investor, I can share all that information with you. Um, we are privately held; we're not publicly traded. So um, it's it's a great pro- it's a great product. It's functional. Um, you know, you chew it and you feel the effects immediately. It's not like drinking an energy drink where you sit around for half an hour waiting to feel it. Uh, so people who try it, they're like, dang, this stuff really works. They can find it at Target. They can find it at Walmart nationwide, Amazon, rungum.com if you don't want to go out and shop during all this uh, you know, corona, coronavirus stuff. Um, it's a good business. You know, I, I, I looked at a lot of different products that I thought about creating during my career. When this one you know, came to mind, when I was able to find a contract manufacturer that could make it the way I wanted to, I just said to my business partner, Sam, I said, this is it. This is the product that I really believe in, um, that I want to use in my own life. And, uh, and the margins are there and the investors were excited about it. So we launched in the fall of 2014 and, you know, provided we can weather this economic storm that's about to just crash down around us, I think we'll be just fine. We're well capitalized. So I think as far as startups go, uh, we'll weather this storm pretty well. Yeah, I think it's a, I mean, a, a fantastic product in the sense of, I mean, that was my brother before every race, double shot of espresso because he didn't want a lot of liquid in his exactly. stomach. Exactly. Same idea. When the gum came out, I was like, wait, that's an even better idea. So glad to hear that's going well. Let's talk a little about your YouTube channel. I mean, you you've you had it, started it a couple of years ago, and then you took about a year hiatus. And then recently in the last year, I've noticed it popping up in my feed, and I'm not even on YouTube. But as I was getting ready for this interview, I just started watching video after video. <laughs> It was very entertaining. and I mean, one hour went by and it wasn't hard. I mean, you've cut up vapor flies. You took, you paid three people in a Target parking lot to race into the store to see who could be the fastest to find the run gum when it first started being sold in Target. You gave them $500. You might have actually lost money on that one. But I, I was looking at it. When you had the running only videos, you know, how to be a better runner and during your career, you'd get like 10,000 views. Some of these views now, you're getting 3.7 million views, 2.1 million views, another 3.7. Um, it seems like the most popular ones are where you race other people. So yeah. how does one video go way more viral than another? Is it all the YouTube algorithm? Do you have any yeah. sense of what's going to go viral? So the hardest part about YouTubing is building that initial subscription base, right? Subscriber base. And Finding a niche, carving out your niche, and then getting to say twenty or thirty thousand subscribers is really, really hard. And the reason most YouTubers fail is that they're they don't define their niche, they don't stay in their niche, and they're not consistent. And it took me almost two years to build up my first twenty or thirty thousand subscribers. And I knew that my fastest way to do that was to do something that I already was an expert in, which is you know mid distance running. And give some of my knowledge back through educational videos. And that's really what we did. And it was a grind. I quit a couple times. I I kept coming back to it. And then once we got to about 20 or 30,000 subscribers, we made a really calculated investment in hiring um, a videographer, a young videographer that understood this generation. Because, you know, the majority of hours being watched aren't watched by you and me. They're watched by teenagers. And uh, I said, we have to find ways to connect with teenagers that educates, inspires them, you know, entertains them, thumbnails and titles and concepts that they just have to click on. And then once they're, once they're clicked in, they just want to watch the whole video. That's how you 
win at the YouTube algorithm. And so we hired this young videographer out at University of Oregon just as he was graduating. And we really found our stride in terms of coming up with concepts, the way that he edits them, the length of the videos. Um, but you're right, you've really hit the nail on the head. The ones that do best for us are entertaining and provide some kind of combination of me trying a physical challenge and ideally inviting others to try that challenge with me. What was the most fun video you shot? Uh, it only has about a quarter million subscri- uh, quarter million views right now, so it's not my best video, but when we sent those vapor flies into space, I used a weather balloon to send a pair of vapor flies like 70,000 feet into the, into the stratosphere. That was really, really fun. Um, that was more me just geeking out on like winds aloft and weather balloons and scientific stuff, but that was great. I think all the, all the race means I, I enjoy them for what they are. They're very taxing, like physically and, and emotionally taxing to do those because you're running like 50, 40 yard dashes in, a, in like one afternoon. Uh, but those do really well. And, uh, the downhill mile, I ran, I ran that downhill mile in vapor flies to a sub four. I think I ended up running like three fifty five horribly painful like i was sore for a week afterwards but kind of fun in that like type two fun where in the middle of it it sucks but afterwards you're like that was really cool one of the things i thought was interesting you ran a 400 in crocs and i i don't i want to have robert guess because this was i think it's an unofficial or i don't know if you got it you know notarized we don't get any of the world records ratified because okay but robert what do you think nick ran in crocs for a 400 meters i'm gonna go over under 60 i'm gonna go 62 no, it was way four. Wasn't it like yeah, I ran fifty four, <laughs> which I thought was pretty good for an old guy. Let alone I was shocked Crocs. by that fifty four in Crocs. Like even for, I mean, I'm sure like a pro four hundred guy could probably run fifty low, but like fifty four is pretty damn fast. I was Crocs. happy. I was happy. I didn't know you could even run fifty four in a you know pair of spikes anymore. So just... <laughs> I I try to stay in good shape. I mean, I'm not logging seventy miles a week like I used to, but I work out every day seven days a week. It's a lot more lifting and cycling and less running now, just because I can't run that much, but. Um, yeah, I still try to stay in, in some, some decent shape. I'm glad all the videos you mentioned are ones I just watched. I just watched the one go up into space. Is that legal to like shoot it? Yeah. I mean, what if it came down on somebody? So like- it's, it's interesting. You asked that I'm actually, I'm, I was supposed to take my check ride tomorrow to get my private pilot's license. I've been training for this for a year and that of course got canceled. But in, in learning about weather for, for becoming a private pilot, you learn so much about winds aloft. And did you know they send 800 weather balloons up into the stratosphere daily? I mean, it's incredible this, the infrastructure we've built out, and so I wanted to send one up, and I I didn't I'd, I'd already bought the weather balloon. I didn't know what the payload was going to be, but I, I wanted to send this weather balloon up. Just so happened that Vaporfly was trending and would make kind of a cool cool title and thumbnail. But uh, you can legally send them up. You don't have to file with the FAA if it's under a certain weight, which I think is five pounds. You can file what's called a notum, a notice to airmen that you're doing this. You can't do it near. Um, airport so we went way up the mckenzie river valley and and flew the weather balloon up there but yeah you can you can legally fly them so we'll link to the youtube video channel on, on the show notes what which if someone has never watched any of your videos which one video should we recommend that they start off with um well I'll cater to your audience a little bit um i think race me for a hundred dollars versus university of oregon students was really neat specifically because some of the university of oregon track team came out to race me you know, which is really funny. They had to say, hey, we're here. We're just we're just having fun. We can't take the money because of NCAA BS rules. But I mean, some really legit runners showed up and, and I got to race them on University of Oregon campus. Cool. What is the goal of the channel in the sense of, I mean, you said it's mainly teenagers watching YouTube, but are, are they potential run gum uh, 
you know, customers, uh, customers. Yeah. Thank you. We don't really market to teenagers specifically, you know, it specifically says on the back of a packet, like if you're under 18, you know, this probably isn't for you just like most energy drinks. Um, but teenagers who do use caffeine really enjoy using it. You know, consult your parents first, of course, but a lot of college kids watch YouTube videos and they are definitely a target demographic for us. Um, you know, I, I, I think if you looked at my audience demographics, it's largely male oriented, male skewed, um, between the ages of like 15 and 30 or so. So a lot of, lot of great customers there. The, The goal behind the YouTube videos is threefold. One, they make great commercials for run gum, you know, whether subli, whether directly or subliminally, there's always a mention of run gum, you know, in the videos. So they're great commercials for run gum. Uh, two, the ad revenue is phenomenal. And as a website, you guys understand just, you know, if you, if you're getting a lot of eyeballs on the things that you're creating, there is really good money to be made in AdSense. And so the money coming from the views is, is very good. And three, it allows me to stroke my ego and connect with fans that I was missing. I really, one of my favorite parts of being a pro runner was connecting with fans. You know, I was the guy and you guys remember this about me. I would stay after a meet for two or three hours signing every single autograph. I understood that without fans, you don't have a sport. And also, I liked the feeling. I like, I, I'm, a, I'm partial, partly an ego-driven person. And having that attention fueled the fire for me to train harder. Today, it fuels the fire for me to work harder. So uh, there, it's, it's threefold. It's, it's ego and connecting with the base. Uh, it is ad revenue and it's, it's uh, commercial for run down. I can't believe you think the revenue is good. You got to have like a million views, and you get like what five or six thousand dollars. A million views isn't hard to get in YouTube. Well, I mean, I, for me, on one that's video, a, that, yeah, I mean, that's a that's a year's worth for us of our post race interview. And that's why YouTube is just—it's really truly a, a, a incredible machine right now. And I don't know that it will f- forever be that way, but right now, you know, I, if I could, if I didn't have these social restrictions, I could—I have about twelve videos that I'm almost positive every single one would generate more than it is. Well, I can't make them right now because they're meetup videos, but one day I'll be able to drop those. Well, I'm, I'm glad you, I liked your stroke the ego comment, very honest comment, because when my brother made us do the podcast last year and Jonathan really likes the podcast, I'm like, why are we doing a podcast? There's no money in it, really. I mean, we have thousands of people listening to it, which is fun. I'm like, the only thing I'm getting out of it is stroking my own ego. So it's kind There's of fun to hear myself that, though, talk. Right? Yeah, hey, so well, good. I'm love be, stroking your ego. So it's a win. I know, but I didn't know I was allowed to admit that. Nick's See, helping I think, me. I think, I think myself. I think people you view that as like such a negative thing. Oh, he's the egomaniac or he's ego driven. A lot of people have accomplished a lot of really cool things by being ego focused. Now I think that it can be detrimental. The amount of ego I maybe had in my early to mid twenties maybe was an unhealthy amount. I think the ego that I have today at 36 is enough that motivates me to do stuff. It it gets me out of bed. I want to create, I want to interact. I want to be good at things. I want the attention of, of my fans and, and I want their trust um, but uh, it's not to the point where, you know, I may be unhealthily focused on my ego to the point that I can't maintain a good relationship or I can't, um, you know, get through the day in a sane way. Is there any thought of, of maybe having some sort of television career or as a talk show host or I always thought I'm a, I'm a horrible actor. Like I, I had really good grades in college. The one, one class I didn't do so well in was acting for non-majors. I'm not a good actor. I'm, I'm good at being myself, you know, and, and I get to do that on YouTube. I thought about potentially going into TV, but the, the, the few times I've gone into TV, the, the way that the producers kind of tell you how to act and what to say and how to behave doesn't fit me very well. So, 
um, you know, some commentating that I did. I, I would I would say the things that people want to hear that they should hear. So and so, you know, was on drugs. They they're, they're, they they just got done serving a four year ban for drugs, and they'd stop me. This is not live, of course. They'd stop me and say, "You can't say that." I'm like, "Why can't I say that? It's absolutely true." So being uh, being muzzled or harnessed does not work well for me. And on YouTube, I answer to nobody. I can say whatever I want to say. I can be as silly as I want to be. And uh, so I think that for me, that that's probably a better uh, place for me to to interact with the camera. I can't believe you're not a good actor. When I say, how awkward is it when you're standing up with a sign outside of Target saying, "Will you race?" and people keep turning you down? Is it kind of embarrassing, or is it just? Uh, no, I mean I. I don't know if that doesn't embarrass me at all. Like some people say it's cringy. I'm like, maybe if you like were in that position, it would be uncomfortable for you. It's not uncomfortable for me. I just, I, I don't know. I like, I sometimes I, I, I like being silly and I like pushing people and making them uncomfortable a little bit and seeing how they react. I, it, it doesn't bother me to do those things. All right, Nate, before we let you go, I have a few quick hit questions I want to get through. One of them is, uh, I'm an alum of Dartmouth College, and I'm kind of curious. I'd heard that we were my coach recruited you, that you would consider going there. How close were you to going to Dartmouth? Did this actually happen? That's so funny you mentioned that. Um, I applied to three schools, Willamette, Dartmouth, and NAU. I got into Willamette. I got waitlisted at Dartmouth, and um, NAU, was. Too, I, I thought that the elevation was going to be too tough for me. So I went to Willamette and I didn't, I didn't really apply to a lot of schools. I didn't look at a lot of schools. If I hadn't gotten waitlisted at Dartmouth, I would have gone to Dartmouth. <sighs> See, we, we missed out on a multiple time. You could have ran against Rojo's teams. I think he was coaching the Ivy League back then. I'd have, I'd have loved to. I, I had a buddy that went and I, he loved it. I, I thought, oh, this is so cool like, to get to go to such a prestigious school. I was about to take my, my visit out there to, uh, to meet with the coach when I got the notification that I'd been waitlisted. And I was like, yeah. Need to get back to training and focused on you know finishing my senior year, so I didn't oh, take man. a trip. That's a miss, that's a missed opportunity for Barry Harwick that could have been a school record holder. He was a great recruiter. I mean, I was really excited to come out and visit the team and meet him and run for for Dartmouth. But yeah, I guess everything works out in the end. Yeah, well, except for Dartmouth College, uh, we're, we're done. Okay, but um, I want to ask Donovan Brazier. So you mentioned, I mean, his potential earlier in the race, earlier in the podcast. We already know he's the world champion. He's the American record holder now. How fast do you think he can go? Can he break Radisha's world records one day? That's a good question. I don't know. I think durability starts to come into play at some point, right? And he's young. Donovan's young. You know, he didn't get beat up through the NCAA system. I think he only ran, what, a year? Maybe a year and a half? And One year, yeah. And I think I think he's probably got all the resources that he needs to stay durable, but to, to be able to do what, what Rudisha did, it takes years and years of building and building and building. And it takes also a certain amount of like luck in that there's competition around to push you, the right people to train with. I think Don, if anyone has the physical gifts and the resources to be able to break Rudisha's record, it is Donovan. But a lot has to come into play for him to, to be able to have that perfect storm that allows him to, to run that fast. If it's me, nothing against Donovan. Again, I think he's phenomenally talented i don't think that he breaks david's record but i'd love to be pro- proven wrong yeah well i think the smart bet most with most athletes if you ask will this athlete break the world record 99.9 percent of the chance time it's going to be no but with donovan he's one of the guys you think i mean one of the things that crazy it's crazy to me you said you ran 70 miles a week as a 800 runner donovan has never run more than eight miles in his life like do, does that blow your mind this guy can run 142 and basically just be a sprinter 
yes and no. I mean, look, look at the way Donovan and I are built, right? You, you got like, two totally different type body types, different ends of the spectrum. You know, if I was built like Donovan, I'd, I'd probably be a little more sprint focused and, and I wouldn't be out hammering, uh, hammering miles like I was. I think going back to my career, one of the things I'm most proud of, I, I, I played the cards that I was dealt pretty well. You know, I'm not a six foot three Maasai warrior. I'm not built like Dwayne Solomon. I'm not built like Donovan Brazier. I'm a short, stocky white kid from Idaho who somehow found his way onto two Olympic teams. You know, I, w- I was dealt a, a good genetic hand that you, you don't get to be an Olympian if you weren't. But I developed the limited genetic gifts that I had really well, I would say. Not just me, like the incredible team I had around me. We took what genetic gifts I had, and maybe it wasn't a David Radisha type setup, but we took those gifts and developed them to really, I think, reach my potential. And I, I, I think so many times athletes don't always get to reach their potential. I look back on my career, and I, I, if, if there's one thing I'm super grateful for, I really feel that I reached my potential. Good point. Now, while we're talking about Rudisha, he was trying to make a comeback. Do you think there's any chance that he could come back? I, I guess you got to define comeback, right? Like, can he come back and run really good, really well? Can he medal at the Olympics? Yes. Yeah. He's 31 years old. Now. I would I would not count him out. I, can he medal in the Olympics? Absolutely. Will we ever see a world record out of him again? Absolutely not. What about a uh, favorite meet to compete at when you were a pro? Oh, I'm hungry. I, I was going to say, I don't know, a T-bone or like a ribeye. <laughs> My favorite meet, meet as a pro, Monaco stands out as a really special place to race. Uh, such a fast track. I, I always ran fast there. My my personal best to this day in the 1500 comes from that track. Um, so that was really special. And then, you know, I, I would be remiss if I didn't say Eugene just because I always raced above my weight class, you know, fought above my weight class on that track. And all my, my best memories, a lot of my best memories come from racing here at Hayward Field. What about best race that you have seen that you were not a part of? That's a really good question. Wow. Um, you know what You know what really bothers me is that, and I, again, no regrets, but 2008 Olympic final, was it Malad? Not Maladzi. It was uh, Bungai? Who, who won that one? I believe Wilfred Bungai. Wilfred, yeah. Wilfred Bungai. I messed his name up. Wilfred Bungai. That race went 52-52 for the win. You know how many times I've run 52-52? Like, if there was ever a race where I think I probably could have just smashed, like, the 2008 Olympic final was built for my style of racing. I really, in some cases, would have loved to have been born just a couple years earlier and hit that in my prime. Because I I don't know. I wonder if I could have been an Olympic gold medalist that day. How does that happen? How does an Olympic final go 52-52? I don't know. That's what I still look back and I'm like, that was the lowest hanging Olympic gold medal. Nothing against one guy's accomplishment or any anytime you win gold, it's an incredible accomplishment. But dang it, that is just a weak race in my opinion. I could crush that race in my prime. But you, I mean, you were at the Olympics that year. You just didn't. I didn't make it to the finals. No, I bombed out in the semis. I really was overwhelmed in 04. Uh, excuse me, in 08. I... I was really grateful to be there. I had certainly peaked at the Olympic trials, so I was kind of hanging on for dear life. And I had never, nav- I hadn't learned how to navigate the rounds. It took me almost what four or five tries to make a finals. Is that right? I don't know. It took me a long time to figure out how to make a finals. Once I did, I, I was really consistent at it. I made four straight finals um, in outdoor global championships. But it, it is so hard to make the finals in the men's eight hundred. So hard. And uh, that's why you see veterans oftentimes making the finals because they learn how to navigate those rounds better. So we talked a lot about the highlights of your career. 
What about the lowlights? What would you say is the biggest regret of your career? It'll sound silly, but my biggest regret of my whole career was not starting a YouTube channel earlier. And I, I just say that because I, I know if I'd started my channel back in like 2010 and had been posting all my workouts or at least a workout a week, I'd, you know, I'd have 10 million subscribers by now. And um, I was really good at recognizing things that were going to be important for me down the road, you know, whether it was uh, starting to build businesses in my 20s whether it was, you know, really building out my Instagram following or, you know, any of these things. I, ne- I I was really late to the game on YouTube. I didn't I didn't recognize how powerful it was going to be early on. So that's a regret. Um, but as far as like the running goes, no, no real regrets. You know, I, I think I made the right moves, signing with Nike out of school, um, ultimately signing with Brooks in 2014. I, I think I made the right moves. You had a lot of fairly accomplished coaches during your career is one stand out as your favorite coach or is that allowed to say that uh no no so I'll, I'll talk about the three main head coaches i had gags coach roland and danny Mackey. and it's so funny they, they one they all had a very similar coaching philosophy so that helped you know it was easy transitions um they're all very patient people which which is very important i think when you're coaching young men and women um they all came to me at the right time in my life, if that makes sense. Gags was really all about developing post-collegiate talent to make teams. That was his priority. He said, I want to get people on teams. Like The medal's kind of icing on the cake, but my job is to get people onto teams. And that's where I was at in my life when I was running for Gags. Then when he retired and left Eugene and Coach Roland came in, it was kind of like the exact opposite. He said, I don't care at all about U.S. titles or U.S. teams I only care about winning medals. And if you're not here to win a medal, then I can't coach you. And so it forced me to, to approach my seasons different, to approach my training different, to step my, my expectations of myself up to that next level. So he came at just the right time as I was developing as, as a professional athlete to really become that, that runner that he wanted to me to be. And then, you know, I think I could have finished my career very happily and successfully with Coach Roland, but the opportunity to go and work with Coach Mackey to finish out my career with Brooks, a really you know great company that that supported me um, towards the end of my career. I mean, it, it was it was the right fit. You know, I, I think I wouldn't have enjo- I wouldn't have been able to finish out my career as successfully with Nike as I was with Brooks and Coach Mackey. I guess we've talked for roughly an hour or so, so I think I'm all out of stuff to ask. I will I will conclude unless you have anything else you want to add or Jonathan you want to add. <laughs> My, my my departing question is Nick. Thanks so much first of all for joining us. But where do you see yourself in five? Oh, that's a good question. So I'm 36 now. When I'm 41, uh, probably doing the exact same thing. Yeah, it's so funny. Um, through all of this COVID 19 nonsense, it makes you really step back and say like, what's important to you? And I I literally wrote out like, what do I need to be happy? And you know, I need my family around me healthy. That's number one. Um, I live in my house here in Springfield. It's actually the house I've lived in since 2009. I own it free and clear. So that's nice. I, I, I love it here. I wouldn't, I don't want to leave Springfield ever. I need to work out every morning and I need to go fishing on the weekends. Like if I have those things, I'm the happiest person in the entire world. And it costs me almost nothing to maintain that. So I'll just be here doing the exact same thing. I think uh, the the creator side of me, the person that just loves creating and loves interacting with people, YouTube is going to be a really big part of my life, a big focus for the next few years. Um, I imagine we will 
probably sell Rungum. Rungum will get acquired at some point and I'll start another business. I love entrepreneurial business. So 41-year-old Nick looks a heck of a lot like 36-year-old Nick, married probably with some kids and just building building businesses and trying to inspire people as best as I can. Oh, well, great. It's been fantastic. Thanks so much for the time, Nick. Yeah, thank you guys for the questions and uh, thanks for following my career. You know, I, I always say, I always had endless time for the media. You know, I did every podcast, every interview. Jonathan, you know this. If you shoot me an email asking me for a quote, you will get a quote by the end of the day. And I recognized that for for us to build build this sport, for us to have a fan base, we had to be open to the media. And so I've always said nothing is off limits. You guys can always ask me anything. You know, people would ask me about drugs. They'd ask me about transgendered athletes, and I'd always have a quote for them. So, um Though Let's Run has uh, been a, a source of uh, frustration for me at some points, I'll say this. I check your website every single day, you know, without fail because there is no better place to get a pulse, uh, you know, feeling for what's going on in the sport than Let's Run.com's homepage. And as far as aggregation, no one does it better. And uh, Jonathan, you, got, you especially have created some really wonderful in-depth pieces that I've read. Well, we appreciate it. There you go. Nick Simmons, He, we've got the official Nick Simmons endorsement for letsrun.com. So appreciate it, Nick. Thanks for, for your time. Great catching up today. In this crazy and difficult time, if you're looking for products to help perform better, our friends at thefeed.com have you covered. They're sending our team a fresh supply of Martin and their new AeroFit device. Check it all out, thefeed.com slash letsrun and use code letsrun to save 15% off your entire order.